You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Bracken, it's Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Not Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. What happened this week? I thought I had a nice ring to it. I was wrong. <laughs> you, you weren't wrong. Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. When you say it like that, Bracken. It's not Tuesday or Wednesday today, by the way. We're addressing some. My mom asked me last week, so which of you says Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday? She didn't know. That it was you? Yeah. I was a little hurt. I thought it was pretty obvious, especially since you're her son. Yeah. Maybe I don't whisper enough when I'm around her. That's a good thing, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess. How many people whisper enough in front of their parents as adults that they would recognize their whisper? Whisper into their ear, never, hopefully. Whisper in proximity once in a while, but they shouldn't be hearing it. So yeah. who knows? Anyways. Oh, yeah. Thank you for everyone for your patience. Uh, Lisa's surgery, <laughs> it's about me, right? It's always about you. It hit me hard. I, I told Kirk, I am losing the single parent battle. <laughs> I, I walked next door to my parents yesterday. I said, well, we're out of bowls. We're out of plates. We're out of forks and spoons. And I haven't done laundry yet. And this was at the end of day two after her surgery. So I was just losing the battle. I, it gave me a heightened sense of appreciation for single parents. Not easy, huh? Yeah, because I, I generally either edit this late at night after the kids have gone to bed or early in the morning. But those time slots were not available to me because we have a three-year-old who doesn't know how to sleep without Lisa. So that was my full-time duty at night. And by the end, I was so exhausted, I just fell asleep with her. I didn't get back up. First night, I didn't brush my teeth or shower. <laughs> I woke up at like four in the morning. Like, oh, what just happened to me? <laughs> I'm in my regular clothes. I'm sweaty. My mouth tastes awful. And then the next morning, I had to get on to the next stuff. And I, I just, I got behind. So it's Lisa's fault we didn't get Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Uh-huh. Lisa, you hear that? What, so you think the surgery so far has been harder on you than on Lisa Bracken? Is that what you're saying? Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. She gets to lay around all day. Oh, boy. Get up and walk a few times. She gets to catch up on shows, watch movies, take Oxy. Like, this is a this is a vacation. Hey, I got Oxy, too. We could take an, have an Oxy party. Has she been taking hers? She took half of a pill the first night and next morning and then stopped. She didn't like how she felt, and mm. she went to ibuprofen, and actually, it, she liked that better anyways. They gave me six pills. And I didn't take any of them after my hand surgery. So we got a surplus here. We can start a side business bracket. My dad, her dad, my brother, everyone around us has had the, the hernia surgeries. And they're all like, yeah, take it the first night because you won't be able to sleep without it. And she ended up having terrible sleep with it. So then she's like, no. no, not for me. So what was the hardest part about this single dad day? Like what were some of the things that went wrong on Tuesday? It, there was not like one glaring thing. It just snowballs and suddenly you look at the clock and you're four hours behind where you think you should be. There's not a, a moment to yourself. So again, all the single parents out there, uh, hats off to you for getting it done. I used to think that, I don't know, that it would be better. I've had moments like this, but consistent days in a row like this, no. 
So it's it's tough. It's just suddenly it's 9 p.m. You haven't got any of your stuff done. And it's that decision. Do I get sleep or do I get my stuff done? Mm. And the first night I just chose sleep. Chose sleep over the running public. And you know what? That's a good thing to do. Family first. Take care of your business at home. Running public will, will be here for you on Wednesday. Got a lot of messages. We're living normal lives. Remember, this is a hack job operation over here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, when we start charging you for episodes, you can start heckling us for not getting them out on time. Then they will be 6 a.m. in the morning on the day it's supposed to be up. But until then, life happens. That's right. So my apologies and thanks everyone for your patience. And Lisa has been a trooper. She's been a champ. I suppose yeah. after you've given birth a few times, what's a what's a hernia? I have zero perspective on that, Bragging. And let's just keep this about you here to start before we get into our episode today. Um, you're running a race this weekend, most likely. I might. Yeah, it depends how things are going around here. Well, tell me. You told me a little bit. Are you? Are you like? What are the chances we're showing up? What race is it? Uh, 50-50. It's the Highlander Assault race, but it's called Dark Ages because it is a 10:30 p.m. race in the in and off trails in the woods. So it's headlamp racing. You know technical fantastic terrain. Fantastic about that, though, is if you look at the forecast in the Midwest this weekend, you got lucky, sir, because it could still be like 50, 60 degrees at 1030 at night. Yeah. On Saturday. Yeah, it's it will be. Cool. I think it'll be like 58. Dude, that's going to be comfy. You're going to go rip it up. You got to go. I really would like to because I've never done. I've done a couple of ultras where you have to start with a headlamp in the morning. And I finished one ultra where your headlamp goes on at night. But I've never been bushwhacking in the dark that seems strange <laughs> not bushwhacking but technical terrain some off trail so uh, i'm intrigued by that option the 5k or what is it ish I, I actually haven't even looked at the course map yet because if i start doing that i'm going no matter what and i want to make the right call for the family well all joking aside you've been selfless not selfish lately it's not all about yeah. you. you're taking care of the family and if lisa's feeling good maybe you deserve to go and take a few hours and go run in the mud with your friends. You know, during the day, that'd be doable. But since it's at night, if a kid wakes up or needs help getting, sometimes they just only half wake up and they have to go to the bathroom and you have to carry them in there or do something uh, like that. Or if a kid wets the bed or something, you got to flip a mattress up to its side, you know, and she's not, I'm not going to leave that to her. So it really depends on how the kids' nights are going the next day or two. Okay. But yeah, I'd like to get a night race in. That'd be cool. I love running in the dark. Anyone who really knows me knows my prime workout hours are nighttime. I saw an Uber fact a couple of weeks ago, Uber fact on Instagram, about why running at night, you feel like you're going faster. I don't remember the answer to that, but there is something to it. Perceived speed. They did a study on this. Yeah, it's perceived effort and speed. Uh-huh. They they dimmed the lights in on an indoor track and they didn't let people wear watches and they just had them run time trials. And then they shut it all the way down with just bare amount of lights illuminating the ground on the track. And they did it again. And people reported uh, significantly less perceived effort. And they were saying they were hitting the same pace or faster. And at the end of it, across the board, they had run slower. Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Cool That's study too. That's very cool. All right. So anyways, you can go out there and run like 430 pace out on the trails. You think you are, and you're running five flat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, folks. It hasn't been that long, but we got a lot of ammo today, don't we, Bracken, for our next Q&A? We do. Thanks for participating in the, the little Q&A we put on Instagram. Well, and I think I got, I don't know, 20 screenshots from the last 
month or so. So we got our hands full today and it's time to, it's time to, uh, you know, I haven't looked at any of these first, just like you haven't. So we like to go in blind. for these. Yeah, going in blind. And I'm excited because I have the first half of it on my phone. So I get to rapid fire them at you and you get to respond. That's fine. Bring it on, bragging. Rebel Trucker 94 says, how accurate is Strava GAP, which is their grade adjusted pacing? He said, it seems pretty accurate, but I want to know for sure. I don't know that answer. I wish I did. I I think it's smart in this sense. Okay, You know the answer. Well, it's not that accurate, but <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> okay, so there it is. But I think it's smart in this sense. Let's say you run one mile, okay? And you run one mile in seven minutes. But in that seven minutes, there was a hundred foot climb, a hundred foot descent, another hundred foot climb, another hundred foot descent, but you still ran seven minutes. It will take into account in that mile, the fact, even though your net gain is zero, you gain and lost, your net is zero, correct? You went up and down the same amount of feet. It will still give you a faster grade adjusted pace because it knows that you climbed within that mile. So it will show your effort within that mile reflected in some capacity. Being like, I know that was harder than a seven minute mile effort and my GAP is 620 that makes me feel better. In that sense, I feel like it at least gives you an idea. Even though on Strava, it might show a zero for elevation gain and loss, the GAP will pop up. And then you can say, ah, there must have been some elevation change in there. Do you understand what I'm saying there? I do. I would say it's neither precise nor accurate. I think that it's consistent in the formula it uses, but it's not precise as in it can't give you the same result every time. And it's not accurate as in it can't give you the correct result every time. Yeah. So it's it's accurate in the sense that treadmill conversions pace charts for incline treadmills are accurate. They equate from flat to 5% to 10, 15, whatever, and everything in between. And they're consistent with that as is Strava's, but it cannot take into account terrain. And I think it's particularly wrong on descents. We're already ahead of ourselves here. Like half the people probably don't know what GAP is on Strava. So maybe we should explain <laughs> that. So- GAP is grade adjusted pace, and it is a sidebar uh, to your mile splits on Strava, which is the app we talk about. And let's say you uh, are chasing a lot of vert and you run that mile in 10 minutes, but you had 400 feet of gain. It will grade adjust that pace to like the effort on flat. So even though you ran 10 minute mile uphill with 400 feet of gain, Strava may say, oh, that was equivalent to a 630 mile on the flats. And so it tries to tell you approximately what your pace would have been on flat for that effort, even though what you are running on is not flat. Correct. I believe that's how it works. Yeah. And that's a great explanation. And so it can't read if it was muddy, if it was technical versus smooth, it can't do that. And so it's never going to be right, but it can be semi-consistent in that if you run that same hill over and over, it'll show you accurate from one result to another. So the first time you run something, it's data means very little, but if you repeat your hill, then you can track progress or regression. So in that sense, I find it useful. Yeah. I'm just scrolling through like my long run this weekend where I had some vert. Uh, for example, one of my, uh, miles, mile 18 was nine eleven. It took me nine eleven, but my great adjusted pace is six forty one. My heart rate average was one fifty nine for that effort. Now, if I was running 911 at a 159 heart rate average, for me, I'd be in trouble, right? So it's like kind of a little soft blanket to sleep on and make you feel better about what's going on. And I will say, I will say it's much improved than when they first rolled it out. So I'm not trashing it. I just wouldn't like set my watch by it. Yeah, I, yeah, of course not. But I think it's just a good indicator 
Um, it will give you an idea if you've been going up more or down more in that mile, if anything, and adjust for you. So you're like, God, that seemed really hard. And then later on, you can maybe understand why a little. That's all yeah. I got for that. What about you? I have nothing to add. Okay. Will you two still be getting together for your epic day of running? If so, will you please coordinate outfits and wear the running version of Best Friend Forever necklaces? Perhaps shorts as well. Kelly Brown. Kelly Brown. Kelly Brown. How'd you know Kelly Brown did that? Because I glanced at the questions uh, while I was waiting for you to hop on. Okay. And I, that's a, one of my athletes, Kelly. Ah, I see. Running the ultra in Montana this weekend. What? Um, yes, sure. Why not? What do you want to wear? At least t-shirts. Yeah. Running public stuff. Duh. We don't have any like running public banana hammocks yet or anything. I don't think that we could. <laughs> no, but we'll take some of ours that we already have and we'll slap a logo on there. All right. I got a, um, I got a real bright neon yellow one, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? Do you have anything like that? I don't think I have it unless it's in a box somewhere. I went uh, two years in a row in college for Halloween. I was, uh, me and my friends were Chippendale dancers. Mm-hmm. So we had bow tie, wrist cuffs, and a tuxedo G-string. Seems classy. Seems about it was. right. It was real classy. It, it just, you know, straddled the line. Classy, but here to party. And I don't know if I still have it. Hmm. Well, Kelly, we'll at least be holding hands the whole time. Does that count? Yes, we, we're going to need to <laughs> because Kirk's going to be dragging me along. That is not true. Kirk, you ran two by mile, four by eight, six by four. Am I correct on that? No, you're incorrect. Two by a mile, four by eight, eight by four. Eight by even bigger than I thought. Two by mile, four by eight, eight by four. And you didn't run a single rep other than the first two slower than five minute pace. And even the first two were five ten, five oh seven. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're in better shape than I am. And it's not even close. Whatever Mr. Nike tester, three sub five minute miles in training run when you're in less shape than now. That was October. So you should only be in better shape now, Bracken. Yeah. That's how that works. All right. Well, we'll be holding hands, Kelly. Hopefully that suffices. Kelly, Kirk puts me into the ground when I am fit in workouts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen when I'm less fit. But that leads us into another nice question. Okay. What is our head-to-head racing record against each other? Oh, now, we actually have raced much less than I th- than people would assume. You have to be up on me. Oh, you're definitely up on me. I'm up on you, but there's old history and there's recent history. Well, that would be a little different, but... Recent history, we're one and one, I believe. Yeah, I think I beat you in Jacksonville, and then you beat me in... Alabama. Oh, that year I did... No, yeah, that'd be it. Yeah. And the last two years, we've raced three times. I DNF'd once, and we're one and one. I beat you in Minnesota. You beat me in. Oh, that's true. You shouldn't. I shouldn't have beat you in Minnesota. But what's the other one? I don't know. Was that it? In 2018, maybe. Probably there might have been a Tahoe in there. Somewhere. Yeah, but but then there was. I mean, my first year in 2017, you whooped me in Seattle. You whooped me in Monterey. You beat me at the Lambeau Field Stadium race. I think you were three and zero against me in my first year. Yeah. So again, ancient history and then current. Current, we're pretty, we're pretty uh, split down the middle. We have to do some more of that this summer. Yes, we will. How specifically does carrying a forty-pound kettlebell twenty-four-seven, like Joe DeSanta does, help or hurt your fitness? How, can you? How, what was the first few words of that question? How, how specifically? Specific? That's what I wanted. How? Spe- how specifically? I'll Oof. first say that Joe DeSanta is the figurehead of a multi-million-dollar corporation which means him carrying a kettlebell around and saying, this is what I do all the time is equal parts true and promotion of the lifestyle of his company. 
So no, he doesn't carry it 24-7 because I've spent time with him when he didn't have a kettlebell in his hand. Um, it happens a lot when there are cameras around. And that's not a, a negative statement. That's just a statement of fact. So no, he doesn't have it 24-7. Um, and he's also not a racer. So that's that's the first two pieces I want to put out there. And now you can answer it. When is the last time he's run a Spartan race, if ever? Do you know? I don't think he's ever raced a Spartan race. He's completed on course, but it's always with a, a group of people. So no, I don't. He used to mm -hmm. adventure race. That's why he was interested right. in Spartan in the first place. He was a legit adventure racer, but they were hyper adventure, like 300 mile in uh, the, the Tundra style races. It's just a little ironic that our founder has never run one of his own races, which is just noteworthy. I don't know if it means anything, but it's... Amusing. It is. It's interesting. Uh, here's the thing. Carrying a kettlebell around, if it is a one one singular 40-pound kettlebell, it can be really dang good for working like offset muscle groups, especially in your core <laughs> and your trunk and hips. If you're not carrying it in front of you with both hands, which most of the time Mr. Joe DeSena is not, you are working your offside body in extreme what your close side hip and then you're opposing like core and oblique um, tremendously. And I have to imagine that core stabilization from your midsection through your hip girdle is going to be extremely improved, especially those, uh, those support staff that insert into the hip. I would say that's going to be the biggest benefit. Um, I could also see some overuse, especially pulling on the tendons of the shoulder would say maybe a negative side after a while, just that strain over time could cause some problems with the joint. Um, but overall, I don't know, what carrying a 40-pound kettlebell around life and then being able to let it go and go do something without it might just prospectively seem much easier, right? So I don't know. Specifically, zero. Ancillary, a good amount. Most athletes, yeah, most people, their core is a weak link in their chain. And uh, I ran downhill with a sandbag on one shoulder for a, a decent amount of the time last weekend, and my obliques were smashed. Mm -hmm. smashed from that. And so, yeah, carrying one kettlebell around would really work on stabilizers a lot. Yeah. But specifically, as you say, won't I, change fitness, it'll change your supporting structure. That's the word. If the word specifically wasn't in yeah. there, it might be a different answer, but specifically, I don't think it's a good spending of your time. Change in pace here. How often should I expect to get some FaceTime with my online coach once a month? Question mark. You should know that when you're initially set up. So your expectations should be set by your coach, not you. So your coach will tell you, hey, this is how it works. Mm -hmm. And then they should follow through with those expectations they set. Um, some coaches hop on face stuff all the time. Some never do. Some are in between. So I believe it's strictly based off of the expectation your coach has set. And if you're not happy with the amount of FaceTime you're getting with your coach, um, one, let them know. And two, that kind of falls on expectation setting uh, in my opinion. Yep. So that's where I start with that conversation. For example, I have two styles I use. One is contact me when you need it. And those people contact me when they need it. And some don't contact every month. Some contact three or four or five times a month. And then the other style is we set up a standing call. And if we need it, we take it. And if someone has life come up, we don't use it. Some mm -hmm. do it every week. Some do it every other week. Some do it once a month. Whereas you, Kirk, you have a different time structure to your day. And as far as I know, you do a lot more email communication than I ever do. And you do a lot less face-to-face -face video time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I hop on probably 10 calls a week. I would say if anybody needs something, I'll hop on those calls. But yeah, email and text. I step, For example, I step away. I'm constant communication with my athletes those ways. I think I stepped away. I had two hours of clients last night and I came back to my phone. I had 22 texts. 
uh, like six Instagram messages and pretty much all of them were clients bouncing stuff off me. So a lot of, but yes, point being, um, it's all expectations though, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. If a coach says they're going to see you on the face-to-face or call, and then you don't end up getting that, then you definitely need to address that and keep them in check because they need to prove their worth uh, consistently. And as a coach who doesn't like have this burning passion for every day reaching out to everybody. I'm someone who loves every interaction I have, but communication is not on the forefront of my mind. Um, It's important to have that expectation set. And then it's important to take the driver's seat on that. If I have an athlete who's not contacting me, depending on my history with the athlete, I either think that things aren't going well and then I reach out or I assume this person's just rolling smooth and they don't, that's why they're not reaching out because they don't need it. And don't allow your coach to make that, that read or misread of your situation. Yep. Well, and I've had, you know, a host of athletes now, um, you know, maybe you didn't talk about face-to-face time or calls, but you realize it's something you value, then approach your coach and say, what can we work out here? You know, I've had a couple of athletes do that over the last few months. And I respect that they know themselves well enough to know that connecting like that is important. So you, you should feel like you can at least propose that if it wasn't proposed to you already and Correct. see how they respond. So you are in the driver's seat as the athlete, not the coach. Yes. So um, keep that in mind. Remember, and this is key and it's something that we're not used to in our sport because oftentimes in the running world, coaches are runners themselves. And most of the time, they're relatively successful athletes because they understand that that platform gives them the ability to draw in clients. But there's this power disparity when you have a successful athlete. You look at it at at uh, post-race, the festival area, athletes have people who look at them differently. The people who have made the podium or, or, or are semi-famous, you'll have someone that you know who's normally interacts one way is a little bit different around them because there's there's that power disparity. And so they get into coaching with that athlete and they think, I don't want to whatever. I don't want to turn this coach off. I don't want to annoy them. But the reality is that the coach exists to keep you happy rather than you exist to not piss your coach off. The coach is the, the servant. The athlete is the master. That's the way it works. When you're paying for a service, if you're the one paying for the service, you are the master. Yes. Period of story. Yeah. If you hired a plumber to come in, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, I see that they're not doing something the way I'd want or they're working on the wrong sink, but I don't want to tick them off. (laughs) You would say, hey, I'm paying for you. You better fix this correctly. And it's the same way with a coach. There's just more of a personal connection. So it's tougher to do. Yep. Do you make protein smoothies and what is the best recipe? Subjective. Uh, Sometimes, not very often these days, but I believe every solid smoothie should have avocado in it. Not everybody will agree with me on that. I like that. What about you, Bracken? Crocker Household washes our smoothie maker every night. Okay. Every night, which means it's getting used at least once per day. Standard, we have strawberries, blueberries, mangoes, and banana, peanut butter, honey, no matter what else goes in, and usually an emergency packet or two. And then mm-hmm. the optional is that uh, that protein add-on, um, spinach, uh, we oats sometimes, and the uh, avocado might need to be thrown in the mix. But usually, we have not tried that. Not usually, we have not tried that. Cup of berries, half or full avocado, banana, just some ice. We don't do ice. We use our frozen fruit. Ice yeah. is a is a space waster to me. I'm all about bang for the buck. 
Yeah, something I do in the mornings, which you guys should try, if you just want to chocolate it up and get your little morning buzz, you put in a tablespoon or two of cocoa powder, just raw cocoa powder. Uh, makes it a chocolatey goodness, and it's got some ah in it. So it wakes you up. It's got some caffeine in it. So that's a good morning one. Sometimes I'll throw the cocoa powder in there. That's a special treat, Bracken. My thing is you have to have peanut butter. Peanut yeah, butter almond. mellows out the banana. I would almond butter or peanut butter. I'll put both yep. in, yeah. yeah. I like it. Tips for newbies running their first Spartan Beast in July. Don't start too fast. Tip number one. And tip number two, test your gear and fueling and training. Mm-hmm. I think that the equivalent half marathon on the road or trail has much more aid on course than a Spartan race does. So mm-hmm. your nutrition matters more in an, in, a, in a setting like ours because you're kind of at the mercy of what you bring on course. For talking July, we're talking beast. I'm guessing we're talking Utah, which also means elevation, which also means if you're not running up steep stuff and getting off your treadmill at 15% and getting on some real steep terrain, you're not going to be prepared for that race either. You could be another one. I'm sure there's another beast in July, but uh, I start there. And then I also would say as a newbie, your gut instinct is going to be to cram in as much training in those few weeks leading up prior and maybe even going in a little tired. And that is not the answer either. Get that hard work in now, start now, build appropriately, and it's okay to back off as the race approaches instead of squeezing in last minute sessions. Yeah. The only other place that I could think of it could be is Canada. And either place, you'll never regret having more hill work in your legs. (laughs) Exactly. Name some racers from the early days you'd like to see come back. Pre-Cody's. Well, Cody won the world championship in 2012. So Cody... It's not fair to say pre-Cody. He was just good all the way back. But I'd like to see Jung Young Pack come back and go after an ultra again. And Rosemary Jari, I think, on the female side. And I'd love to see that original crop of women. Uh, Tyann Clark, Jenny Tobin, uh, April D. I want them all to come back and tear up the Masters ranks. I feel weird saying this, but there's one guy that I want to race to compare myself to. And that's Chad Trammell. Mm. Only because, got a hair in my mouth there, only because he's such an accomplished endurance runner and trail runner. And he was always like, Chad Trammell never got his attention. He finished fourth and then fourth and then fourth. And all those Spartan highlight videos would never show him. And I see what he's doing non-OCR now because he's taking his training that way. And I would love to come back and race that guy. I don't know why. But that he just appeals to me. He was like an he was like one of the unsung sort of heroes of that era that never got the credit he deserved. He racing him is like racing Mark Botris, except he got less recognition than Botris ever got. Running times and everything, they're kind of in the same range. Or they can just run high tempo from the start. They're not gonna fade much. He even has more staying power than Mark, probably. He may not have the top end mile speed as Mark, but he has better stay power. And always found a way to either win and not be known or to mess up an obstacle and not be known. He's, he's the Mark Botris before Mark Botris was Mark Botris. Stud trail runner, solid on the roads as well, and never quite broke through to that level of superstardom, but he got even less love than Mark got. Okay. Him and then I would say uh, I've never experienced Matt Novakovic in his prime, and that would be very yeah. interesting. I, I guess, were you going there? You smirked. No, nah, just that pr- pr- Matt Matt's brand has become so convoluted over the years as he's tried different things and 
angered different people or had different aborted comebacks, but Prime Novakovic is still one of the top three to five toughest racers I've ever raced in my life. Throw him in any competition from five minutes to to three hours, and he was a handful. Yeah, He was that type of person that you beat him or you didn't, but he wasn't going to back off. Yeah, I'd like to see that version of him again. He still has it. He's still so fit when he wants it. He just has to be. He's at that stage of his life where he's tried and done well at so many things that he needs sustained desire. Right. So as soon as something excites him, he'll be back. Is anybody else we're missing? I still don't think most people understand Prime Yatsko. And I don't know if we'll ever see him again, but I would have up until this year. My my list included Josiah. Oh. But now it looks like we're going to get him again. Unfortunately, a decade past his true prime, but he's still an animal. For perspective reasons on Yatskow, he had a, it was a sprint race in Montana in the U.S. National Series. And, you know, sprint against the best in our sport. And John Yatskow failed the monkey bars. Being, I think, like, and just not paying attention. Failed the monkey bars. And he dropped all the way back. It was the day after graduating college, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he got little sleep, came back and won a sprint U.S. National Series race after doing 30 burpees. On the men's side, you do not see that. So that means, I mean, he hunted down some of the best. Impressive. He he was at his prime. He ran the trails like Cody with, dare I say, more athleticism. People don't understand how good of an athlete he was. All around springy, fluid, flowy athlete, but... Yeah, on the women's side, that Tyon Clark, Jenny Tobin, Rosemary Jari, April D, that crew I'd like to see come back and and start cleaning up. No, I'd like to see people forget that Corinna Coffin, when she was like 19, went and took third at the world champs. You know, she's yeah. probably what, 20, 30 pounds lighter, less muscle. Yeah. But God, Corinna Coffin's one, if her heart was in OCR, she would be so scary. If she wasn't on the CrossFit realm, but I mean, obviously she loves what she loves, but that'd be an interesting one too. And I'm going to say Alec Blennis. Okay. I want to see Alec come back and go after something ultra. He was another guy 19 when he started. He was the original VJ making podiums, got real into long distance stuff and then moved after college, got more into coaching. And he's like one of those people that has that balance of strength to endurance He's strong. He's really puts an emphasis on on functional strength and power, but can run too. I'd love to see him make a comeback. Right on. Any resources to diagnose and correct running form faults slash running efficiency? Any like free resources, I'm assuming? <laughs> if you're looking for cheap resources, I would say watch a bunch of YouTube videos and then buy yourself a mirror and run on the treadmill in front of it. Outside of that, you got to go to an expert, unfortunately. But you can watch yourself run and clean up all the glaring issues yourself. It's uh, it's one of those things like when I run and I'm running well, I feel so fluid and efficient. And even in those times, if I go back and watch video of myself, I can pick apart flaws, even though perspectively, I feel like I'm butter, right? None of us really are. So I agree. Being able to look at yourself in real time is important. Um, the, 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 the poor man's way to fix your form is to just get a metronome and set it to 180 strides per minute and at least make sure you're not overstriding, right? That's the biggest mistake most people make is overstriding. They're doing 150 or 60 strides per minute, and that can cause a lot of issues. 
I'm not telling you that's going to fix all your problems, but I'm going to tell you it's a decent place to start to, to correct general form flaws is to get your cadence up. So by get a metronome app that they're free. Um, you can download a bunch of them. Some of them you can even have music that goes to 180 per minute and you just start there maybe. I don't know. I mean, if I'm given maybe not great, cheap, free advice, that's what I would start with. What do you think of that? I think so because it's hard to strike the ground poorly if you're if you're under striding or striding correctly. Correct. You can have not great ground contact, but it's hard to be bad at it. And then watching yourself in the mirror is easy to fix your upper body. Outside of that, you need an expert. Agreed. How do I implement cycling for cross training? Currently running three times per week from six. So they drop from six times a week down to three. How do I implement cycling? Well, I'm on that plan right now, sir or ma'am. So I can Max. Talk unless it's Maxine. Sir, um, if running is your focus, which I trust it is, it's not like you're transitioning to be a triathlete or anything. Um, my game right now is I'm running all my quality work as if I were still running all my mileage. I'm hitting my quality days and my long runs. In fact, I'm hitting them pretty big. And then I'm filling the gap. All my bike work is recovery. So I check my heart rate, I keep it in check, and I make sure it's a recovery effort. So I'm honestly just filling the gaps on the bike to get me to my next run day. And that's what I suggest you do too. I don't think if you can run three times a week, I don't think you need to be hitting quality on the bike. I think you use the bike to get you back to homeostasis to fuel your runs that are next. So that's how I would do it. I like it. I have nothing to add to that. Cool. Kind of along those lines, but not really. How does working retail and walking four to six miles a day affect training? Go ahead. All right. I think it affects it greatly especially if it's newer to you. But the way I see it is kind of like that bike. You keep running your big workouts as if you don't work retail and you adjust your overall easy day volume as if you do work retail. It allows you to lower your aerobic volume, but it cannot substitute your quality volume. I like that. I'm on my feet. I'm not covering that much distance, but I can be on my feet for four to eight hours a day at the gym. Um, I guess maybe I've done it so long that I do not believe it affects when I actually get into the run, the run happens as well or as poorly as it was going to happen regardless, in my opinion. But I like what you outlined about maybe not letting it impact your quality days, but maybe toning back your recovery days. I agree with that. When I was prepping, I mean, this is a long time ago, but from 2011 through 2013, I was racing and teaching at the same time. And teaching's eight hours a day. If you're a good teacher... And I will throw some people under the bus. Barring disability, if you're a good teacher, you're on your feet. You're not sitting behind your desk. Mm -hmm. Full stop. <laughs> so <laughs> you're doing a lot of walking. And then as a special ed teacher, you're, you're going to other classes across the school. You're following kids. You're kind of the firefighter for putting out fires in the school with behavioral issues. So there's just a lot of movement throughout the day. And I coach to sport every season as well. So now that's a 10-hour that's a minimum day on your feet. And I practice with the kids, whether it's track, basketball, cross country, didn't matter. I was I was on in practice the whole time. So it's it's big volume days. And I was prepping for a a two to three hour race and I was running forty to fifty miles per week because that's all I could handle with my daily grind on my feet. And you're also at the mercy of what your job allows you to wear for footwear. My job was incredibly supportive, but I could not wear hokas or I mean I don't even think Hoka was there at the time. I couldn't wear athletic shoes. Uh, we, we were business casual. And that actually had more effect than the time itself had. You know, I got 
the cushiest orthotics I could, but there's only so much you can do on a pair of wingtips, Kirk. <laughs> classy man. I'm a classy man. So yep. I ran probably two thirds of the volume I'd want to hit for a three hour race, but my life volume buoyed me and I still hit all my big workouts as if there was no life stress. Feel it out. And if you got a big workout plan, it's important to you. Maybe you just get up early and hit that before you got to go stand on your feet all day yep. and just suck it up. Yep. I like it. Oh, let's see here. I've been training for the Dallas Stadion race. Any tips on how to prepare? Where should we start? Well, well, there's a lot of vert in this race, isn't there, Bracken? There are two types of stadiums. There's Dallas and there's all the others. So you need to be training like it's a mountain race, a short mountain race, because there's like 2,000 feet of gain in like four miles or something crazy. So you are going up and down. Yeah, prep like you would if you were holding a stadium race in the mountains, but there were stairs instead of slopes. And practice going down them fast, efficiently. Yes. So important. Most people crash in the second half of that race because it's so long. It's not a 20-minute race. It's a 35 to 40-minute race for the winners. And it's 18 to 2, 000, 1,800 to 2,000 feet of vert. And going down the stairs, you can lose minutes. And going up the stairs, you lose minutes when you break. So you got to do a lot of stairs. And you need to have double the fitness you need compared to every other stadium out there. You know, I would say... For most stadiums, I I probably am rarely even going to get on a set of stairs in training. I'll go uphill and know how to simulate the ups, and I'm efficient running downstairs. I've done it enough where I can be all right. But Dallas would be the one exception. I would get on stairs without question beforehand because it's just so much of them. That stadium's so tall, so big. You have to. Yeah. Now, two of my best performances in stadiums ever were done with no stairs in training but I had plenty of hill work. I would not go to Dallas without significant stair work. Yeah. So I think if you're doing all your other pieces to your OCR training with your compromise work and all that, there's no difference other than like, you gotta be training for a mountain race. That's what I would say. Anything you've run it. I haven't. Anything else you'd add to that? No, that's it. Stairs, 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 endurance. This is, this is a threshold race, not a 5k race. Kind of starting to get our, our pattern today. Would it be possible to perform at the pro level of OCR or trail racing or running, working 11-hour days and 60 hours a week? Yes. First of all, 11 doesn't go into 60, bud. All right? Yeah, that only comes out to like 55. Or 66. I'm just kidding. 66. Yes. Answer is yes. Cody Moat, Hobie Call, Amelia Boone. Kirk For Dwight. a while, Ryan Atkins. <laughs> yeah, What'd yeah. you say? Kirk Dwight. <laughs> I'm almost I naming. That. I was naming world champs who had full time jobs. <laughs> Did they say world champs? No, they said pro level. Okay. So I was I was naming the tip of the spear. You're like the the upper shaft. <laughs> Where the welding happens. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. You're right at the welding. Like base of tip. Here's the thing. Our uh, base of tip. All right. You know, it's a selfish sport. This is a selfish endeavor. If you want to work those kind of hours, I hope you don't have a wife or a husband or children or a dog or anything. And then, yeah, I think you can sneak it in and get seven hours of sleep a night and have nothing else in your life at all. Somehow you could do it, Um, but you're going to need a lot of time to do that. So um, I don't know what your home situation is, but you're going to have some people who feel shorted, I think, if you train truly at the level that you would need to if you've got a busy life outside of work and racing. But I don't know. Maybe you can swing four hours of sleep and be Superman or woman and do it all, but I can't. On the male side of the sport, 
It's a little different than the female, but on the male side, our world champions have been Cody Hobie. Well, let's explain what Cody Mook, tell us what Cody Mook does. A uh, full-time teacher and coaches three sports and has five children. There you go. Okay. Hobie Call, full-time HVAC and has like 16 kids. <laughs> Six. They're both Mormon. Right? <laughs> A lot of kids. We had John Elbin was not full-time at the time. Robert Killian at the time was full-time in the military and has two children. And uh, VJ Jones won 3K OCR Worlds. Outside of that, am I correct? There's only been five world champions out of the two major OCR Worlds in Spartan in the ma- on the men's side? Well, you didn't wrench in Ryan Atkins, who is, has been champion OCR Worlds. Yeah, what distance? Hasn't he won? He's he's out ousted. Hasn't he Albin in something? Short course once? I don't think so. A team champ, yes. I don't think uh, short okay. course you got him. Well, maybe nothing. Well, let's add him to the list. But But so two out of five, one out of five or two out of six did not have full-time jobs and multiple kids. So A, yes, it's possible. And B, my take, having done both, having worked a full-time job, coaching three sports and multiple kids, and then doing it full-time training is if you can't do it while you are working, you can't do it without working. It is more convenient when you're not working, but if you don't have the ability to do it while you're working, you don't see a huge leap without it. In fact, some people get stagnant without it because there's no fire in terms of your time schedule for each day. I agree with that 100%. It's not going to change who you are as a human by having a crazy job or having no job. Your, your motivation is intrinsic no matter what, and it's either going to get done or it's not going to get done. I, I will say, and this has come up a number of times, we've seen athletes go pro in quotes and get worse and get injured. And sometimes when you have too much time on your hands and and I'm that case right now, I'm squeezing things in constantly. I am much better off limiting myself. If I had more free time and overtraining syndrome, there's a, it's not, that doesn't work for actually most people, right? You got to be careful there. So sometimes it's a blessing to have a busy life and squeezing things in because the other side, like the grass seems greener over there, but I'm telling you from like conversations with other people and watching them, it's not always. So uh, maybe your situation's all right. I actually do want to speak on this a little bit because there is that, it happens a lot where someone says, you know what, I just need to go all in on this for a year or two. And my advice across the board is, unless you are financially, like independently wealthy, it is not worth it because there's not a huge pot waiting at the end of the rainbow as an endurance athlete, unless, and this is the unless, unless you are a world-class talent. If you are a world-class talent, go all in as your job because you could make as much or more doing this and it will set you up to make even more afterwards. So let's look at Hunter McIntyre. He out earns as a, I mean, he makes six figures as an athlete, but he's setting himself up to make continued six figures after his career is done because of his insane level of notoriety and connections he's made. Outside of that, people end up just going back to their job after a while because there's just not much here in the endurance world. So if you are a world-class talent, go ahead and quit your job and go all in. But if you're not, I think best scenario is to try to finagle a half day per week or one day off per week. That's better for you to get your one big drive out somewhere or your double day or whatever it's going to be. But people don't improve like they think they would when they go full-time athlete. What it comes is haven't we, we did an episode about swinging the hammer hard, right? Mm-hmm. And basically, you just need larger chunk of time twice a week to swing that hammer a little harder. 
And what does that mean? You could take your vacation days and take Tuesday mornings off of work every week. Instead of getting one big vacation every few half a year, you just take Tuesday mornings off. You swing that hammer hard, you enjoy it. Like those sort of things would be a good stepping stone. And again, that's for the specific athlete who's thinking about going pro and quitting the job. I, I know most people can't take every Tuesday off, but if you're thinking about leaving your job, I'm sure you can find a way to keep it and have a safety net. That was a long answer, but I think it's worth it. People need to hear that it's not going to be, you're, you don't turn into a new athlete the day you quit your job. No, you do not. Not even close. What's your preferred race sim for a 5K on the road? A race sim for a 5K? Well, that's a confusing question, but it's not, isn't it, Bracken? I, I guess race sim, what do you do? Two-mile time trial? Get as close to it as you can without running the race distance? What do you think? I, I don't. I, I do a workout progression that each workout gets me closer to be able to handle it. And if I really want to nail one 5K road race, I jump in one prior to it to get used to it. But no, I don't. I actually don't have a sim for shorter races like that. You go above to a 10K, down to a mile or two mile, or you just run a 5K. So there's something called, we called them traditionals in college, the traditional. And the traditional would be a 1500 sim or a 3K sim. And what it is, is it's basically you break up the race distance with very short rest in between interval reps. So if we were to do, um, if we were to do a 5K sim, this is what it would be. It'd probably be a 1.5 mile hard, one minute rest, one mile hard, one minute rest, 800 meters hard, one minute rest, kick home for 0.1. And you're giving yourself like three minutes break within the 5K or something like a mile hard minute rest, two by 800 with only 30 seconds rest, four by 400 with only 15 seconds rest between. And you're only accumulating like two to three minutes rest in there in a practice scenario. So that's called what we call traditionals, meaning limited rest adds up to race distance and you can get close to a race predictor time that way. So that's one thing you could do. Um, make You could make it up, but either, I wouldn't go any longer than a mile and a half chunk to start, mile or mile and a half. And good distance running programs all have those. Lacrosse has that. Michigan has the full Michigan workout and everyone knows their time on the full Michigan. And lacrosse used to do it to simulate a mile. And, and there's a lot of ways to do it, but that's it. You break up the distance into chunks with short rest. But for the general person, I think the best way to get good at a 5k road race is to run one or two prior. Yeah, we had a traditional 1500 workout and it was 800 meters, 45 seconds rest, 400 meters, 30 seconds rest. And then what's the remaining there? 300. Yeah. So we had 45 seconds rest, then a 400 meters, 30 second rest, 300 meters done. That was it. And it was like a total, like a minute 15 rest or something. And lacrosse did something interesting. They go like 600 on 50 meter float, 400 on 30 meter float, 200 on 20 meter, something like that, where they would just run race pace or faster and then float for eight to 10 seconds and then get back on. And I think my brother ran 420 in a mile doing that one year. And he realized, oh, I'm suddenly ready to race. But hey, my, those are tough. In my 1500, we did the traditional my freshman year and I ran 350. Uh, five in the traditional and I ran 356.3 was my best 1500 meter time. So it was close. It was yeah. within a second. Yeah. Those can be as bad as a race itself. Horrible. The worst. <laughs> it's basically worse because it's all the pain of the race without any of the competition juice. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's just say if, it, if I were to give you a 5k sim gentleman or woman, um, I think I would go one mile, one minute rest, two by a half mile, with only 30 seconds rest in between. 
and then four by 400 meters with 15 seconds rest between, and then just kick home that last 10th of a mile and add up those numbers. And you're going to be, I bet you within 30 seconds of your race, 5k race predictor. That's what I would come up with for that one. What would you okay. come up with for that? I think I would just go three by mile oh, you would. with short rest with 20 to 30 seconds rest. Mm-hmm. I think that racing with people removes that rest and you can do the same thing again, roughly. Yeah. But it's tough. Yeah. All right. Something would have to get you to the point where you feel after two miles of a race where you no longer want to race anymore, mm-hmm. where you know I need to accelerate to get a good time, but instead my body says, we should really, we shouldn't even really be out here right now. What's, right. what's really the point of this? Our life doesn't, you know, when it talks you out of it, you got to get there in training. Yep. Short, short rest does that. Yes, it does. I like this. If you have extra pounds to lose, is it smarter to wait till the off season or slight calorie deficit right now? Both are good options, depending yes. on how much weight you have to lose. If you need to lose 20 pounds, get on it now. If you need to lose five, I would be okay pushing it off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always just the, the term calorie deficit scares me. Yeah. Because it almost always feels linked to no energy. Because what do we do as athletes? We push the envelope. Mm-hmm. If someone's driven, they are going to turn a 12 mile run into a 13. And they are going to turn 58 miles into 60 for the week. They're going to turn 500 calorie deficit into 750. They're going to turn 750 into a thousand. That's just the way athletes' minds work. And that's really tricky in season because that leads to diminished returns because of energy loss on workouts and then not being really ready to work on race day. So ah, it's tough, but you're right. The more you have to lose, the earlier you start. But I like the idea of ramping up your training rather than cutting back on calories and trying to just melt it off a little bit. Yeah, and if you're going to do a caloric deficit, very minimal caloric deficit, like just a few hundred calories at most a day, which maybe won't bash your energy system too much. And then I would stay out of caloric deficit for two weeks leading into a race if it's the big race, um, for sure. Uh, that would be how I would approach it. But I would say off-season is the best time if you had to – If I mean, the safest time would be the off-season. I agree. How do you balance training for a half marathon and a 5K simultaneously or a Spartan beast and sprint at the same time? I think they go hand in hand nicely. What do you think, Bracken? Yeah, we've, we've talked about it before, but the best 10K runners in the world can crack off a mile. The best yeah. half marathoners can rip up a 5K. Stay in power. We're talking about, we just had that, that episode on a lactate threshold. Lactate threshold is the single most important factor in my mind in anything from... 5k to marathon. Yep. Single most important factor. I don't care about VO2 max. I truly don't. I don't think it it matters. Lactate threshold directly matters. And so if you're improving that, you're improving your whole race spectrum. And then you keep a little bit of short, spicy race pace stuff in there just to stay sharp. Exactly. You're going to train for the longer of the two distances as if that's the only thing you are training for. And then if you have some shorter stuff, just give your, just filter in a little bit of the shorter, quicker turnover stuff into your training. And honestly, I think you're going to run a better 5k training for a half marathon at times than you would if you were just training for a 5k. You're going to overtrain. You're going to, what are we, that 120% that Dr. Fred Clary talks about? Well, you're doing that in a sense by training for a beast, but then racing a 5k. And so they actually work really, really well together. It's just if, if you were solely focused on the beast, I wouldn't necessarily say we're going to have some short 
VO2 max work in there a lot, but I would just filter it into a 5k program. But 95% of what you're doing is going to be all geared towards your longer race distance. Yeah. If Kirk and I both were equally fit, but I was training for a 5k and he was training for a half marathon, he would be better at the 5k than I would be at the half marathon. Yes. It is way easier to cut down in distance than to extend up. Yeah. I mean, what'd you just say about your uh, race partner, John Penland? <laughs> yeah. Running 90 mile weeks and no speed, but lots of strength work. And I had Jacksonville speed and he'd smash me in any distance over a mile right now. And he might even beat me in a mile. Because threshold running wins every time. Always wins out. Trail running shoes. What types of shoes should be worn for specific terrain types? Yeah. Broad strokes here, Kirk. That's all we can do. Everyone's feet are different. You have people like John Albin who did all of his training and racing for five years straight in the VJ IROX. Mm-hmm. Which blows my mind, by the Ultra way. Ultra distance, 100 mile weeks, mountain descents in minimal, gnarly tread shoes. Then you have someone like me who I had to wear hokas when I moved out to the mountains because I couldn't handle the descents. But general rule of thumb is the softer the terrain, the less stack height and cushion you need. And the more technical the terrain, the less stack height you want. And you want some torsional rigidity in that shoe so you don't flip sideways out of the side of the shoe. And the harder the terrain, the more cushion people's body likes. Now, that's about as close as I can get to a, a, a blanket statement other than, if you know Kirk and I, we have a shoe for each terrain type. Not everyone wants that. No, I think everybody should, though. If you were to go golfing... You carry how many clubs in your bag? I don't know, 11, whatever you're allowed. I'm not sure. And each each swing or scenario requires a different club. And I really do feel that way about shoes. Like shoes are your golf clubs and different shoes for different applications. So the question is valid. Where it's hard to answer is everybody's feet are different and everybody responds differently. I think the biggest mistake people make is two glaringly obvious ones. One, They choose too big of a cushioned stack height shoe and then they get on technical terrain and they feel like they don't have control over their efforts and turns. And so they they just run in their hokas for training and then they go to a really technical course and they wear their hokas and it's nothing like the terrain they're training on and they are slipping all over in their shoes and it's a tough deal. Now, the other thing is I see people in these long, hard races and they wear minimal shoes and their legs end up wrecked halfway through because the pounding is so hard that they think they need to wear the the minimalist of minimal shoes because they're racing, but it's an open wave beast racer who's going to be on their feet for five hours. Yes. You need more shoe then. So it's either wearing too little shoe or too much shoe for the terrain. It's like you got to get dialed in there first. That's how I feel. I fully agree. And, and feet are so different. Kirk just ran a 17-mile trail race in the Evo Speed Goats, and I told him I couldn't wear it on that terrain because I feel unstable in those. And he said, yeah, they feel a little unstable. I couldn't wear them off-road, but on that trail, it was great. And then you look at Steve Hammond, and he just ran the full ultra first lap course in Montana wearing the Evo Speed Goats, Bushwhack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I couldn't do that, but he can. They feel great on his feet. So you have to match the shoe to your foot, and you shouldn't care about what everyone else is doing. When Hobie Call first started racing, he wore Adidas XCS cross-country spikeless shoes. And Mm -hmm. then Nike Waffle XCs came out. And they're this really light, really lugged shoe made for cross-country running. Probably the bet, the, the most aggressive lugs ever on a rubber bottom cross-country spike. And he's so light and efficient, they were perfect for him. And he wore them for everything. 
And that next year, I can't tell you how many dozens and dozens of people I saw show up to every race distance wearing the Nike Waffle XCs. And they are very narrow. I could only wear them for a sprint. I could Mm -hmm. not wear them for longer than 40 minutes because my form would break down and my feet could not heel strike in them. It was so brutal. And you'd see people going out there with a giant hydration pack on to do a four or five, six hour race in them. And I thought that's buying a shoe because of someone else, not because of you. And you just don't want to be that person. You want a shoe that will support you through the end of your race. And I will say a lot of people, you know, you look at the pros and a lot of the pros are lighter on their feet than a lot of the others. Okay. Uh, some of you that are heavier, whether it's muscle or chub or whatever, I don't really care, but you see guys running in like their VJs for their long runs and all these things. You see all the pros doing that. And you think that's what you should do. And VJ is a fantastic shoe. And I run in them all the time and they're, they're fantastic. But if you're a 200 pound plus person going out for a long run and you think you should be running in the extremes for three hours, cause Ryan Atkins does it. I'm not necessarily sure that's actually the good logic. You can't compare yourself to the top end pros. You need to find what's right for you. Um, so, and then my other thing is like, I always think more is more when it comes to shoes in most scenarios. Like if you're debating and you don't know, I think, I think you always err on the side of more than less. If you're on the fence. I firmly agree. Yep. For increasing pace, should an athlete focus more on building leg strength or faster run economy? I don't know what faster run economy means. Um, more run economy would be good. Um, economy speaks to efficiency, not speed, um, mm-hmm. unless they mean economy at faster running paces. So do you want to build up leg strength or economy at paces? Um, I see it to two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm so waiting for you. Oh, okay. Uh, here's the thing. I think over speed training is what maybe you're referring to here. Um, I think is if you only had to pick one, okay, you had you, your backs against the wall and you got to pick, I'm going to either over speed train, which means trains faster than I plan to race, or I'm going to only train as fast as I plan to race, but add in strength work. I would pick over speed training over strength work every time. And you see the pros doing that too. A lot, the focus is on overspeed work. So I, I would say that still takes precedence. I would say if you can do both, you're going to be much better off. I don't think picking one or the other is the right answer, but if I had to pick one, it would be overspeed training. What yeah. about you? I agree that for running, the single best way to get better is by running. Yeah. But I, like I said, same two sides of the same coin. I ideally would start my off season working on leg strength and power. And I'd flip the coin over after I was used to that. And I'd start working on overspeed. Yeah. I think one changed into the next. I'd, unless you're strapped for time, it's one into the next. And if you're strapped for time, it's definitely a speed. Yep. This, this is a question I've never heard. Why does my stomach get extremely blank after a run? Kirk, what's the blank? Do you think I'm going to say cold? What? Did you see the question? Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. Why does my stomach get extremely cold after a run, even in warm temps? All right. I'm going to say something. I don't know who's asking this, and I'm going to say something that's going to hurt some people's feelings. And you're going to be surprised I go here. I know where you're going because I've heard it for the back and outer part of thighs. And your ass. Yeah. So yeah. when you're working hard, blood flow leaves the fatty areas of your body and it goes to live working tissue, which is muscle. And so your body temp, when you're working hard, is going to feel cool to the touch in all areas where you carry the most fat, which is typically people's midsection and their thighs or their butt. 
So if you felt your bicep or you felt anywhere where you know the muscles right under the skin, it's going to feel warm. It's going to feel like it's been working. But it's purely how much fat you have there. So that must mean that there's a layer of fat over your stomach, which most of us have anyways, right? We're not calling you out. And you have no reason for blood supply there in the moment of working out. So it's typically where fat deposits are laid. Is that yeah. what you your answer? Uh, that was going to be part of my answer. Because I all the time on after runs, the outside of the thigh, that outside of the leg and butt and glute, like all that area is much colder to the touch. Exactly like what you said. Blood's not needed there, so it leaves. But I've never heard about this in warm temperatures. Yeah, same and, thing. And so it makes me think that there could be something else at play. Because I've never heard someone say, my stomach's extremely cold after a warm temperature run. You also have two. If, you, if you're running, let's say this woman, it's a woman or a man. Woman. Woman. Um, if you're running a sports bra, all you have is the wind blowing against you, cooling you off, but your arms and legs are moving, so they're going to be generating more heat themselves. Oh. So it could be something simple as that. Yeah, uh, my, I guess if I touch myself after a run, like if I go to wipe sweat, my stomach's clammy feeling. Yeah. And my chest and arms are hot. So I would never describe it as extremely cold, but I would certainly say there's a temp temperature differential on my torso compared to my working muscle muscles. Yeah, 100%. So I think it's even my stomach's going to be cooler to the touch than other parts of my body. And I have a lower body fat percentage, but I still fat there, right? So yeah. I think it's maybe like a little bit of wind coolage uh, in combination with uh, fat placement. Okay. Opinions on carbon trail running shoes. The future? Question mark. I don't have enough experience to answer that. They are the future in the way that it's a single arrow in a specific quiver for a specific course. If you are on predictable terrain, carbon fiber shoes are going to be pretty awesome. However, every time you have to go off camber, run technical, run uphill, you're going to lose the advantage. And there is a active phenomenon in terms of uphill running with shoes that the more flexible a shoe is, it climbs differently than a stiffer shoe. Same thing with stack height going uphill versus downhill. So a lot of those benefits wouldn't actively carry over to uphill, but for a smooth, flat, like rail trail type of thing, absolute game changer. For a mountain race on buffed out trails, it's going to be pretty awesome on the flats and the downs. But if you're picking your way through things, it's not going to help. And if it's technical terrain, it's not going to help. So it's going to be horses for courses kind of thing. And it still needs a lot more refinement because they have to nail that that plate flex, I mean that plate stiffness, which propels you forward, versus the ability to not hit a rock and snap your ankle in half. Mm -hmm. So it's more like where where is the technology going to go with a specific climb descend technical carbon shoe, which is a tough it's a tough deal. Very much so. And what is your terrain? You would not wear them on certain terrain. And already there are shoes I'd wear for certain terrain. So uh, Kraft came out with their um, their first um, carbon pro shoe. And it's heavier than a road shoe, but it has some stability to it. And you could wear it on certain trails. You'd feel awesome bombing downhill in Tahoe. You would not feel awesome going through the technical sections in Tahoe. So you'd have to balance that out. Would it be worth it or not? Um, North Face has the Vective. Uh, who else? There's one more out there, I thought, that has a current carbon fiber trail shoe. I would say Kraft is the closest to a finished product trail shoe, but it is a calm trail shoe. 
there's not yet a full carbon plate technical trail shoe out there because there might not ever be. Mm. Yeah. I don't have a ton of experience. Uh, what, what they're doing is, and I believe crafted this is that they have their normal, normal are just shaped like a big spoon. Your heel touches and it propels you onto this wide four foot plate crafts. I believe it's like cloven hoofed. It's split in front so that it can handle a bit of terrain shift. It doesn't rock in one plane. You can flex one side more than the other. You can't see me, but I'm doing that live long and prosper fingers right now where it's split up front and you have a little bit of ability to handle terrain and flex hard off your toe, your big toe when necessary. It's split like a deer hoof. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. You were sort of doing a camel toe thing there, but yes, split yeah. up front. Exactly. Yeah. Think four foot camel toe and you've got it. <laughs> you've got it. You've got All it. Right. I think it's the future, but I think it's further off in the future. And I think it's a very specific future. You still won't find me in it on a technical race, but if there was a downhill or a flat trail race that was smoothish, bet your butt. Sweet. How would you program running for power lifters slash CrossFit? to maintain 1300 total, but from 25 to 21 5k. I don't know what 1300 total means, but they want to move from a 25 minute down to a 21 minute 5k. And they are a power lifter slash crossfitter. I don't know what you're currently doing. How would you program? Let's just say they are doing power lifting and CrossFit. What's your priority means five days per week minimum. How would you program their running? That's a nightmare. Um, it is a nightmare. I, I would sacrifice one of those days for sure and try to get them out of the gym and onto their feet where they can solely focus on a quality run workout meaning faster than race pace intervals definitely have to implement a long run of upwards of 60 minutes 60 to 90 if you're a 5k if you're aiming for the 5k so you got to have two days dedicated to the two most important pieces of your week which would be an interval high intensity day and then a longer duration day for sure and then I would try to sprinkle in two or three shorter runs before or after your strength uh, or cross-training bouts. So I would try to for sure run four days a week, ideally five. Everything other than your intervals and your long run can be short, easy, easy work. But um, that's where I would start with that. But they're both fighting each other a little bit. So it's you're going to slow, slow progress on both ends, unfortunately, most likely by that setup. And, you know, I think I would do that for a 21-minute 5k runner, power lifter, trying to get faster. Starting at 25, I might baby them. I might say, if you're a power lifter, crossfitter, and you're running 25 minutes in a 5k, the thing you need most is just time running and getting efficient at that. Mm -hmm. So I might, almost all power lifters do their cardio, but it's on the elliptical or something. I would just try to get them running 20 to 30 minutes every single day. And then maybe after their Metcon, their CrossFit workout, I might throw in like Tabata style speed work short, spicy, and that's it. And see if you can get down to like 22 or 23 minutes just off that. And then by that point, hopefully they've seen the light and they're willing to sacrifice a day. I'm going to tell them to sacrifice that day right away. Would Fred Clary give up a lift right away or would he need a little bit of carrot dangling? Uh, I, <laughs> Fred would need a lot more than a carrot dangling. To give up a, give Deep up fried a carrot dangling. Ooh, then maybe. Yeah, I, then it's maybe. tough. Yeah, like you said, it's a nightmare because when running's not your priority, then it's really tough to sacrifice your priority for your non-priority. Yeah. Well, we don't know what this person's priority is, I guess, but they definitely enjoy the lift and weight. So it's a tough one. It can yep. be done. It really can be done. You just might need to be patient with results. For sure. Mm -hmm. Or they might come really quick because 
I don't know if they're all power lifting. Yeah. Who knows? Tricky, tricky. Leave that for more patient people. (laughs) Hmm. From an adventure racing athlete view, dot, dot, dot question will continue in DM. Well, that's not useful. <laughs> Next. Physiological. Why is the slow, low heart rate of a recovery run still better than no activity at all? I'd love to hear the physiological ins and outs of how our body recovers better while using running versus total rest. So you're basically talking passive rest versus active rest. Why is it better physiologically to do an active recovery day rather than a total off day, which you and I both like the idea of active recovery for most times. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's some, you know, let's call them scientists that could tell us exactly what's happening in the body, but, um, it's kind of like the, you use this theory about starting a car cold and then, um, and then just gunning it off the line, right? Versus letting a car warm up, revving the engine, take it for a few laps, and then drag race. Which car is going to perform better? Well, the one that's warmed up. So here's the deal, guys. Our recovery days, which get the blood pumping, which get, get our, our hearts up to max stroke volume, it, it re-loosens up all the tissue. It helps flush out and just keep like our bodily energy flowing. And all it's doing is better preparing us so that car is warm and ready to start the next day for the one that matters. Not doing recovery work in between harder sessions is like is like that hard session is like a cold car. And you're not going to be re- as ready for it as if you had warmed that car up first. And that really does mean recovery efforts in between the hard efforts. All recovery efforts are to get you back to homeostasis for your next hard effort. One might say, oh, but if I don't run the day before, I should be extra charged up for my hard effort the next day. And you could not be more wrong. You're dead wrong. You're, st- you're starting a cold car and taking off the line. We want to keep that engine running. That's exactly, it's more costly. You ever go to like a, um, like a truck stop and all the semi trucks are sitting there on and guys are sleeping in the back. It's more costly for that semi truck to turn off and start up and start again than it is to leave it running all night. And the same thing is with your body. Action fuels more action and sitting around does not help you recover better. Period. End of story. I'm sure somebody could scientifically break it down better than that, but that's all I have to say about it. Well, I'm going to give you a silent round of applause for that. That's great. That's perfect. And you know, I'm no scientist, but what the scientists would say is that there is such a thing as metabolic waste products. The harder you work, the higher the occurrence of metabolic waste. And studies have shown that metabolic waste is cleared more efficiently and quicker during active rest than passive rest. And so when you start up two days later, after passive recovery, you have higher metabolic waste markers than if you did active rest the day before. And that's, that, that's all the scientists would say. They'd say it in fancy terms and they'd say what the metabolic waste is, but you can't clear a tube where nothing's passing through there. So yeah, you recover and your engine totally rests. But if we're really existing in between quality days, then our existence in between quality days is not to rest and feel great. It's to clear out, recover, and adapt. And you cannot really do that until you remove that waste product. I like that. You need some water flowing through the pipe in order to clear it out so it's ready to go again tomorrow. And, you know, so what science does show is like, science shows this, going and running at a recovery effort still increases our capillary beds. Yes. It 
it slowly over time helps get more oxygen and blood to the muscles by doing recovery work. So it is actually benefiting you in the long term. When our hearts get up to max stroke volume, which means it's pumping as much blood as our hearts are capable of per beat, that doesn't happen necessarily at rest. And so increased stroke volume um, helps increase blood flow, helps increase capillary beds, which thus helps fuel your efforts in the future better. So there is purpose to it. The reason we tell you to go easy on recovery days is because once you hit max stroke volume with your heart, anything over that is wasted effort. Like that zone three gray area doesn't matter. And a recovery zone two, we're hitting max stroke volume. And that's really accomplishing everything we need to. Whereas if you're sitting on the couch, you're not even coming close. You're actually still missing out on true physiological adaptation as well from that sense. So on top, Kirk, I'm being, that's how it goes, Bracken. Kirk, you're just firing off knowledge here. That's back to back where I give you standing O's for this. You said silent applause. Well, now I'm going to be standing up and giving you an ovation. <laughs> All right. But that's how I feel about that. So you're right. What are the holy, the trinity for endurance athletes in terms of your, your body actually becoming better? It is capillary beds, mitochondria, and max heart stroke. That's what you want. Those are the three you hit when you're working easy. And I'm so glad you talked about your maximum stroke and your heartbeat, because once you're working above aerobic threshold, you actually don't have your maximum stroke volume in your heart because it has to quick go, go, go. It never fully expands and contracts. It's trying to pump out quicker. And that's another, that's a reason we didn't talk about before when we talked about why is gray area bad? And it's because you're not actually getting that aerobic benefit anymore. So I'm glad you talked about stroke volume. Yeah, which you're also not getting when you're sitting on the couch. So Correct. I believe, maybe maybe you get max, I doubt it though. I can't imagine. I believe max stroke volume is reached somewhere in the recovery zone effort. That's that, yeah. Kirk, those two answers right there are the MVPs of the day so far. Woo! Four heavy holds, so static holds, like unrack weight, step out, static hold, re-rack. How much weight above max should we aim for? It's a good uh, question. Well, I'm not an expert on that. I guess Dr. Fred Clary was. He was talking about overloading, like even something like 20 pounds more. If your bench is, if your squat is 300, then try start with 320. Yeah. Start with max and just make sure you're comfortable and then go just over. But I don't know if there's a percentage. Did he throw around percentages? He didn't have specifics. And I think for the endurance crowd, it's even less important to go for an exact number. I think for lifting for endurance athletes, your first time through something, you always err on the side of caution. I would start with my max. I would unrack my max, walk out, hold, and then re-rack. And you can progress up quickly from there, but a little bit goes a long way for endurance athletes. And it's kind of like threshold. It's not like if you hit 107, 107% of your max, that's where the benefits start. No, holding something heavy statically, the benefit, you could be at 90% of max and it's going to help if you've never done a static hold. So start with something, you know, you can handle and then progress up. Yeah, I would start there, but, but you're not starting. Like if your max is 300, you're not throwing 400 on there and giving it a rip. You're doing it very conservatively. And there's no rush with these things, guys, no rush at all. We are always playing the long game with everything always. So Correct. slow is the right answer. Like it. This is a good question. A good debate question, Kirk. Would you rather have VJ speed or Atkins ability to recover? Mm, Jeff VJ, Bollinger. VJ speed or Atkins ability to recover? Uh, no brainer I, for me. I get off on speed, so I'd say speed. I'm taking the recovery ability all day long. Really? Yeah. Huh. That it's my 
I feel like it's our single biggest limiter. I, I don't think I've ever thought I don't have enough speed to do well. It's I can't I can't do enough quality workouts in a week. I could build my stay power more if I could just recover more. And if I could jump into every race I ever wanted and recover and do six hour mountain days and recover, that would be the life for me. Yeah, but we can go the flip side of the coin and just say, does Atkins perform well because he can recover well? Or does he perform well despite doing too much volume close to racing? Oh, I'm not debating theory. I'm saying if there was a skilled capsule you could take to instantly get better recovery like Atkins seems to have or better speed like VJ seems to have. I'm still I don't, going, I don't think VJ is faster than us. He's not. Well, nobody's no. And we're not faster than anybody else. We all can run four minute mile pace. It's just for how long. Well, even for a mile, VJ versus Botrus, they ran 423 on the track. Right. I'm, I'm not saying they're slow. They have better stay power than I do, but I, I want to be able to go hard every day. Give me Atkins recovery. And I would say that VJ, VJ is a great athlete. I, I think there's faster people than VJ in the sport. It's actually his, his ability to stay at his young age, <clears throat> which is the most impressive over those mid-range distances. For sure. But top end speed, there's faster. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, speed still, baby. Ho, ho, ho. Need for speed. Even when we talk superhero powers, I'm taking Wolverine's regeneration ability. I want the ability to just withstand damage and do it again. See, and if I only can race once a month and I only swing the hammer hard then, and that's I'm happy with that as long as it's fast. I want to jump in a race every weekend. All right. Can we get an episode with Taylor Cruz? Sure. Sure. <laughs> they had his first baby this year, so he is strapped for time. Hopefully he's coming off into having a little more availability, so maybe it's time to reach out. It's not as easy to get people on the podcast as you think, folks, by the way. We don't just snap our fingers and all the stars align and they can magically be available when we are or even respond to our DMs. If you knew the shots I've fired out into people's DMs and have gotten ignored, you would have a hurt ego just like I do. Just know we try. (laughs) There's this continuum, like this bell curve. There are the people that are thirsty and will message you and want to come on any day of the week. They'd call off work to come in. And then you have the people that won't respond to you or like, yeah, we can do it maybe like three weeks from now, circle back. I'm so busy right now. And then there's a sweet spot right in the middle of the really interesting people you want to talk to now, but you have to, you have to get the schedule to work. And we really only record midday on Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. And it's usually Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. And that's Uh tough for people who have jobs. And listen, you want to know, I mean, I, I messaged the top three performers in the U.S., Olympic marathon trials on both the men's and women's side, for example, sent out six messages to the top three thinking we're going to get Galen Rupp on. We're going to get somebody sweet on. I got one response from the chick who won and said, talk to my agent, talk to the agent. Oh, she's really busy right now. We can't get you in. I fired off so many Hail Marys guys, and I'm just getting my face rubbed in the dirt, but we're trying hard. So I just want people to know that. Yeah, they should. Yeah. Listen, we are... What would we call it without being haughty? Big fish, small pond? Maybe at best. We're a decent sized fish in the OCR pond. We're a small fish in the running community pond. And our goal is to become bigger in that pond. But, you know, you got to have money to spend money. Mm -hmm. And we don't have enough currency to spend in the running community to get people a snap of a finger. But we have a big name coming on relatively soon, Kirk. I haven't talked to you about it yet. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to say who yet because i don't have it i don't have it locked down but we've got one big name and hey one big name leads to two That's and if they thing. tell a friend and they tell a friend ooh, got yourself a pyramid all right i like pyramid schemes 
We talk about the suck of a race a lot, but what times in a race do you love in the moment? Uh, I like that question. That's a good question. Um, do I love in the moment? Obviously, when you are in, in an OCR race, when you're getting near the festival area and you can start to hear the announcer. For yes. some reason, that is one of my favorite moments where you know, like, I'm somewhere in the ballpark. Really enjoy that. I also really enjoy the the battles that most people never see that are in the middle of the woods. And it's just you and somebody else. You're all alone. And it's something that nobody will ever know but you and you or that other person. And those moments, like when you look back, you're like, that was a cool moment. And it's kind of special that it's your own and nobody else knows about it. And you get a lot of those in races. Even though that's in hindsight, it's very enjoyable um, once you can reflect. So those two things for me. It'd be easy to say when I break away or when I cross the finish line or like when something great happens. But my two most enjoyable moments in a race are one, when I start to feel momentum shift when you're trying to catch someone mm -hmm. where they're not it's not happening you're reeling and reeling against the fish and it's not going anywhere and suddenly you realize i'm gaining line right there at that point where you realize they are coming back mm -hmm. you don't know if you'll catch them but suddenly there's like you're telling me there's a shot you're saying yeah. there's a chance that right there and then from like a group perspective camaraderie on course if you're in a group of let's say three people and you're trying to kill each other and one drops suddenly the two have this moment of like, all right, we got rid of one. Mm -hmm. And you know, in a couple of minutes, you're going to try to kill each other again for that, that one successful moment on course where if Kirk and I are next to each other and someone drops, it's like, we did that. And for mm -hmm. a moment, you're kind of united and it's awesome feeling when that group whittles down, you know, all right, we survived another cut right there. I love that moment. You come yeah. off an obstacle that someone failed. If four people get to a spear, two miss, two guys run off. You always see them fist bump. Yep. You always yep. see it or they get, I, I saw it, uh, Killian and, uh, Kent was leading Killian in West Virginia. I was watching a race and he had a good lead struggled on the tire. Killian got it. They got through, looked back and realized that was, that was a hoss right there. And they're mm -hmm. still on it and they fist bumped and then went right back to trying to rip each other's throats out. But surviving another round of cuts is such a good feeling. Yeah. I like those. Good answer. Difference for application of heart rate zones versus FTP zones. Good question. Going right ahead, Bracken. Well, everyone knows heart rate zones. Some of them vary. I like saying one through five, and that is recovery, easy, high anaerobic into threshold. Then you have your above lactate threshold, but under max, and then all out sprinting. FTP is functional threshold power. It's basically a lactate threshold, but with a power meter. Mm -hmm. So you see this a lot with uh, cyclists, but they use the same criteria. It's 40 to 60 minutes worth of maximum sustained power and untrained athletes. It's closer to 40 and high trained athletes. They call it 60. So again, we just call it 40 to 60 minutes, the max output you can keep, but they break their zones down a little differently than ours. And they either use a six or seven zone scale. And I actually like it more. So let's okay. just use the six zone scale because I prefer that one. But zone one is recovery. Zone two is easy. Zone three is tempo. We're going to let that, that term slide. Zone four is threshold. Zone five is above threshold. And zone six, is, or well, let's call VO2 max. And then zone six is max effort. So it clearly defines every single zone. Whereas with our zones, it's like, well, should I be high, low two? 
I mean, high zone two or low zone three on my easy days. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you could be right around in there with theirs. It's just pure recovery is zone one. Pure easy is zone two. And if you enter zone three, it's for tempo, which for them, it means sub lactate threshold, but above aerobic threshold. They call that tempo. So in that definition, it now has a physiological marker and it's its own Mm -hmm. zone. And then zone four is actual lactate threshold training. Five is VO2 max or above. And then six is like max power burst sprints. I've never used it, so I can't really speak knowledge. It's phenomenal. But it doesn't apply to runners like it does to cyclists or power meters, unless you have a stride or some sort of foot pod power meter, which is a work in progress in the running world. It's cool, but it's not yet bulletproof like it is on a bike. So I actually would like us to take the FTP zone scale system and apply it to running so that there's no guesswork. Yeah. That's the application I could see would be uh, potentially, I mean, I'm curious, like, let's say, do you know, if you were to break down your own zones, for example, what is your zone two in like the five zone scale? And what is your zone two in the six scale? Would you have any idea? It's like slid down one. It's like slid down one. Because zone one in regular heart rate training is a zone you never touch. Right. So if you slide everything down one, they align up. Running zone two is FTP zone one. Got it. And they have an extra zone at the end. And Got that's it. where it comes into play. So it's not like our zone one could be anything below, let's just say below 90 beats a minute or some crap. Or like 110. Right, right 110. But for them, their zone one starts at 110. Starts at or, where you would start exercising for recovery. Got it. It's recovery heart rate zone. So I, I just think it's more appropriate. Our zones kind of feel like the uh, RPE zone. Like where would you rate yourself as a 15 or a 16 and a half on this? Like it's hard to really feel what that is unless you have extensive training in that. Whereas functional threshold power makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And that's one piece of the future I'm excited about is when foot pod power meters get as accurate as GPS. Hmm. Then you got yourself a stew right there. That's right. All right. That is the end of those. And now we just have our screenshot questions throughout the month. So how much longer do you want to go? How long have we been going? About an hour and a half? Hour and a half. Let's just see what we come up with. If we get sick of it, we'll just stop. How's that sound? All right. You want to just go back and forth? All right. This is from Bubbles the Clown. Kevin, I have a right uh, I have a right so as iliacus, TFL, and everything hips. How much is too much time to spend on soft tissue mobility work, lax ball mashing, etc.? How much time is too much time? As long as you have the time, do it. Yeah. I, I think when you have issues like that, the misconception is that like stretching a ton is beneficial. And I think my philosophy has now become that stretching a lot can all can do a lot more harm than good can aggravate, but rolling and that, and that acute work, the rolling, the, the guns, the manual massage, breaking tissue up, super helpful, go nuts. But the overstretching I think can be a problem, but that's all I really think about that. I mean, Kempson was putting in four to six hours a day for a long time to get his hips right. Pay now or pay later. If you got the time, do it. Front load it. He turned out all right, Kempson. It's all right, isn't he? Besides looking good at the beach, do you think there's ever a good time to lift for hypertrophy? If so, when, how, what? I'm Not assuming, as an endurance athlete. Yeah, as an endurance athlete, lifting specifically for hypertrophy? No. No. Even if you have something that's glaringly weak, I'd rather lift for density rather than hypertrophy. 
Yeah, even if you were significantly underweight, maybe, but you'd still want that lean body to just be stronger and more dense, not necessarily heavier. So no, not a lot of application in the endurance. Only, only for visuals. Unless, unless things like you're so light, the Hercoise can't get down. You're True. so light that maybe there's some things where body weight comes into play, but there's such exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. If you, the further you get away from stereotypical running. If you need OCR or DECA or on the far end of the spectrum, high rocks, yeah, then you got to hypertrophy a little bit. Um, Chris John says, uh, uh, hey, guys, great info on back-to-back -back days. But one last question. Many people, including me, will be doing trifecta weekends, meaning in addition to the beast on Saturday, they'll have a super and sprint on Sunday. What should you do, et cetera, between the super and the sprint? Between the two, not between days. This one's tough. <laughs> You got to stay moving. You got to rest while stay moving. Like you mm -hmm. can get off your feet, but if you're off your feet, you got to be doing mobility and soft tissue stuff. And then you got to get up and move a little bit, but you got to get instant calories, instant water, and do not get stiff no matter what. Don't get stiff. That's the biggest thing. Stay moving. Even if it's, you know, like your instincts, like I got to get off my feet. I got to get my feet up. I need to rest. Well, what's going to happen is your body's going to shift modes and suddenly getting up and moving again is going to be like a much larger feat. Like, and then if you just keep the engine revved, kind of like that trucker parked in the, the parking lot of the truck stop. You got are we talking? Those things aren't for a few hours at most, right? Because then if you have a few hours, you can afford, to, then it's a bell curve again. <laughs> you got to move right away and then you can get off your feet and maybe power nap or something. But then you have to get up and restart. You have to warm up again. Like not like, oh, I've already ran this morning. So I'm not going to rewarm up. If I were doing that, I'm still going into at least 10 minutes of running and dynamics again, getting all systems firing. I'm not using my race in the morning as like my warm up for my race in the afternoon. You got to start that all over again for sure. Let's track again. What did we do in track when you were doubling or tripling in a meet? You got done and you immediately cooled down. We'd go for a five or 10 minute cool down after a mile. Mm -hmm. And then we'd sit there and refuel and you'd be moving and always stretching or shaking or doing something. And then 40 minutes before the next race, you start it all over and you get to the start line tired, but loose Yep, and warm. Loose is important. Loose and warm is way more important. Uh, that overrides being tired. If I ran the 800 and the four by four in college, so 1200 meters worth of work, I'd have a seven mile day. Yeah. I'd get a two mile warm up for the first one, mile, mile and a half before the second one, mile, mile and a half cool down after the first, and then another two after the second. Yep. So keep <laughs> moving. It's a game of preparation as much as it is execution. I agree. Oh, let me see this for a second. I got one I can jump into. Go for it. Johnny Oliviera says, Hey guys, I'm somewhat new to running and have been really loving the podcast. Thanks for the great deal of free info you provide. I have a question about being a larger 230 pounds road runner and specifically about the shoes I should be wearing. I currently wear Ultra Torin 4s. Is there something you would specifically look for in a shoe for someone like me? My current goals are improving my mile and half mile and a half time and my 5K. Thanks in advance. Anything you're looking for in a shoe for the heavier athlete? On the roads? I'm going to suit, yeah, Roadrunner, yep. And they're in the Ultra Torin right now, which is a semi-cushioned, zero-drop, wide footbed shoe. Correct. Well, I would stick with what I know. I'd take the Ultra version. Oh, no, the Torin is a road shoe. Yeah, Torin is a Torin is a road shoe, yep. And what are they asking? There is there something you would specifically look for in a shoe for someone like him? I'd stick with what I know, honestly. 
Yeah, I would just say like you're not a candidate for like lightweight trainers. Not yet. At 230 pounds, you wanna you wanna get some nice cushioning, some something, especially on the roads. You got need something to absorb that impact. Staying healthy is more important than feeling light and fast necessarily. So going into something with a little bit of beef to it for training is important. Doing the ultra torrens, um, something like the Hoka Bondi or the Hoka Clifton, something that has a little bit of give, uh, in my opinion is what I would steer you towards, but I wouldn't worry about lightweight racing shoes or anything, um, of that size. Um, so that's probably about it. You kind of earn those shoes. What I would start actually earlier than light shoes, I would start cadence work. The heavier you are, whether it's muscle or unwanted weight, the more proper foot strike matters because everything's amplified on us. I mean, I noticed the difference between I'm 181 right now to when I was racing at 166, the difference in ground impact and cleaning up mechanics and shortening that stride up initially will allow you to graduate to better shoes later. But first you got to make sure you're landing correctly because a big shoe will give you a little bit of leeway in that landing. But if you go right to a more minimal fast shoe, it's going to just exacerbate your landing and that's stress fracture city right there. Yeah. Yep. I agree with that. You got your question ready? I do. From an adventure racing view, I think this is the one before that it started. Yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. If my training plan for four weeks is like 12, 15, 18, and then eight hours. And after every two or three weeks, I would like to do one longer training, like an eight to 12 hour day. How would you fit it in, in a plan 15 hour a week? You would, would you do three hours and five days? And then all the other volume comes in that eight to 12 mile, 12 hour day or what? So they're shooting for roughly 15 hours a week and every once a month or so they want to hit an eight to 12 hour day to, pre to prep for adventure racing, which is all day or multiple day racing. How do you account for that volume? Well, I have specific smart. viewpoints, but what about you? Um, I mean, if you're, so basically this person's trying to put a ceiling on their total volume for the week, which I can get behind because then you're not sneaking in too much volume earlier in the week, which could potentially lead even more likely to overuse or problems. So I actually really like the idea of keeping the effort short during the week, uh, much like you suggested, and then capping it off with one real big hammer swing, recovering and then rinse and repeat that, that climbing cycle. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be spreading. If you're truly racing for a full day or multiple days, um, I wouldn't be spreading that volume out as much throughout the week. I think I would every third week, I think is what they're referring to. Leave it all, leave 70% of it for that weekend. I, I agree. What do you think? I'd reduce slightly that first week and I'd reduce a bunch the next week. What do you say that? What do you mean? So if you're doing 15, 15, 15, eight or something like that, um, I might have it more like 15, 12, 18, six, mm -hmm. where that 18 has my big run in it. I don't totally back off in that week. But then I have a huge back off after. I'd take more after than I would before. But I might do that every other. And that way I'd come in. Adventure racing, 8 to 12 hour day is great. But having back to back day is just as important for an adventure race. So I might come in a little more fatigued every other time and then just totally shut it down after and recover. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is shutting it down after and recovering. <laughs> like that's the, more important than any of the other stuff is like once you hit that big day or back to back days is... Uh, I don't know. Eight hours sounds like a lot to me, even the week after a big, like I'd be looking at like six hours or something less. That's a For lot. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I agree with you there. How do you pick the best line on a trail, especially knowing how Spartan or other off-road trails set up the course? Is it better to pick a smoother, more windy route or direct line? 
intuition on that one, man. You got to feel <laughs> that out real time. Yeah. Yeah. You got to see, oh, my foot gives a little more in the, even though it's a direct line, but my foot, my push off isn't as good versus if I take the indirect line, but it's hard packed and that's less costly. You got to just, that's real time figure it, it is. out. Yeah. It's, I mean, whenever possible, you want to take the direct route, but sometimes that route is not good. How many times do you get on a, on two different courses and they play different. It's back to the golf thing. You got to see how the greens are playing that day. Yep. Sometimes you run through puddles on course and your shoe suddenly finds traction under the puddle. It is firmer in the water than it is on the sides of the water. I don't know yep. why. That's just what it is. And other times you step in puddles and it's just like your shoe almost comes off. And you've got to find out which way that course is playing early and that's how you adjust. So it's not a good answer, but the more time you spend off road, the better you get at at reading those trails and adjusting really quickly. I will say that when the terrain does not seem uh, forgiving in the sense where I feel like I'm losing traction, I will go significantly off tangent to fi find less costly terrain. I feel like that's definitely the most important if it's a long race. But um, Jacksonville and that sure. somewhere around the 800 meter point. We went through a section that was watery and everyone ahead of me went over to the right side and I was moving faster than people at that point that I was working my way up through. So I stayed center. And for the first seven eighths of that water section, I gained, I gained, I gained. And then I gave most of it back in just the last three strides because getting out of it was costly. And even though I got the out of it, maybe a couple tenths ahead of what I would have had time-wise, I had that deep contraction to get out that left me more fried. Yep, so in that yep. case, it would have been better to get out of that puddle a second behind and five beats and less exhausted lower and then accelerate. So yeah, real time guesses sometimes are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ben Nelson's got a question for you, Bracken. Okay. Um, Bracken mentioned IT band issues in school. I don't know when this is from, and I'm going through one now for the first time. So for the next Q&A, if you could go into some tips, advice for working with. Oh, I might be a bad example because I did everything. I did mobility work. I did stretching. I did strengthening. I did single leg uh, squatting. I did lunging. I did single leg press. I did banded walks, monster walks, banded lunging, everything. I went in for uh, stim two times a day on campus. I, I was getting ultrasound there. I just did everything. And it took me out. It didn't ever get better. And then I switched shoes and I was fine. <laughs> so I did everything. I, I can per firsthand tell you that I had that experience of rolling my legs and doing all the exercises for months and getting no better. The IT band is so hard to stretch. But for me, it was as simple as shoes. And how quickly did it go away once you switched shoes? Well, I stopped running and I switched to playing baseball. So it went away throughout that time. But that summer I was lifting and doing sprints, no pain whatsoever, because I was in my old racing flats anytime I did accelerations or agility drills. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel a step of it. And then I got back to running and I was healed. I was fine, maybe nine months later. And then one day before practice, I couldn't find my shoes. And it was just an early morning, like a 6 a.m. lift session. And so I just grabbed a pair out of a shoebox that I had left over from Campbell. It was the A6 Gel Kayanos, probably like the 20s at the time. Mm -hmm. And I put them on and I jogged over. And by the time I got through the stretching protocol on our first half lap around the track, my IT was flaring up mm -hmm. and I took them off and I finished barefoot and I didn't wear them again since. So it was instantly those, those same shoes brought it back. So it was only shoes for me. Okay. I've luckily never dealt with it personally. So 
it was to the point I couldn't even walk upstairs. Man. It was brutal. I warmed up for a track race and just got back in. I said, coach, I can't even do this. I couldn't get through a warm up. Simple shoes. So yeah, for me, it was shoes. What shoes did you switch to? I went to, that's when I started running in the Adidas response cushion, a very neutral soft shoe where the Kayano is a stability shoe. And that's when I found out I can't run in stability shoes. Hmm. It's, it's different strokes for different folks. Um, all right. You got more? Yeah. Ignore if you don't want to talk nutrition on the podcast. I'm not offended. I promise. But we'll talk nutrition, Aaron. This has bugged me for a while about long runs. When nutritional guides say, for example, 60 grams carbs per hour, and then it's okay to go without nutrition for the first 30 to 45 minutes. So does that mean I ignore the time you don't need it and don't consider that in my 60 grams per hour? I start timing then, or do I count it? So if I had a two hour long run, would I need 120 grams of carbs with 60 per hour or just 75 because I don't count it until 30 to 45 minutes in? We'll just simplify that. Start 30 minutes into your run, no matter what, and get ahead of it, and you will be better off for it. You can only get behind, not ahead of it. And if as long as GI issues and distress is not a problem for you, when my watch hits 30 minutes, I'm putting I'm putting 100 cals to 150 in my body. And I don't want it. I'm not ready for it. But I know in an hour, I'm going to be very glad I did. So, so how do you calculate? Let's say it's a three-hour race. Do you calculate it as two and a half because you're starting at 30? Or do you calculate it as a full three and you adjust it to be taken in over only two and a half hours? You don't worry about any of that crap, Bracken. You just take 100-ish calories every 30 minutes until the race is over. And then you leave happy, satisfied, and crushed it. That's exactly right. I calculate mine from when I start taking it for the first time. Because I figure if I really need that extra 60 to 100 cals or 30 to 60 grams of carbs for the first half of the race, I take that as a quick shot 15 minutes before the race starts. So okay. I'm topped up and fueled for the first hour already, but I'll start fueling at about 40 because I can't even stomach it at 30. But you start counting from the moment you start ingesting. All I know is every time I've been on with my nutrition, like I've just been, even if it's inconvenient to take it in the race, it always works out well, like 30 minutes, just do it. That's, it's just like, I don't think it needs to be overcomplicated, I guess. I think it's just like simplify it as long as your stomach's okay. I don't know. I, yeah. And the best my feeling ever felt for long distance was at that Tennessee mile where we had a, a option to grab a bottle every single mile. And so I just started sipping early and often. I sipped every lap all day long. I never got a bunch in and I never went without. I just sipped and sipped and sipped and sipped. And you had constant so fuel. good, yeah. yeah. So maybe early, but instead of taking it every thirty minutes, take instead of sixty grams every thirty minutes. What if you took twenty grams every every ten and just parcel it out? Tyler Siegel, when we ran that fifty k on the trails together until he took off, uh, he said first fifty k. I said, yep. He said one piece of advice: if you're taking a gel or something, make it last a mile. I said okay. It's just a little bit over the mile. Yep. He said he said baby it, sip that thing, don't chug it. Okay. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. He's a lot faster than I am. I got a longer one here from Martin Jonathan. Greetings from Denmark. I have a question regarding training as a new runner at 26 years old. I am averaging, I am right now around 25 to 30 miles per week with five days of running, only running easy miles with a few strides here and there. Every mile is around 10 to 11 minute pace. Uh, I find that extremely slow, but it is the pace that I need to run if I need to be able to hold a conversation. Okay. I plan on building to 40 miles and sticking to that as my base mileage. My question here is, where do I go from here? I don't plan on jumping on a specific training plan for a specific distance, but just want to increase my speed and easy pace for now. How would a weekly training plan look 
like that is sustainable throughout a year with no racing. Can I do a threshold and a VO2 max workout a week plus a long run? Do I stick with one workout and then some fart lick or do I jump on a 5K program, act like there is a race? Hope it makes sense. Thanks for the podcast. Sounds like you want a coach. <laughs> Martin, you need a coach, brother. <laughs> but if you don't, it's always easier to start with two of those and alternate them over the weeks and then add in a third when you're ready. But if you're going to do a long run every weekend, which is enjoyable, switch between the two. If you're staying power for a year, what's the rush? Do one good solid day and maybe add strides in on the other day. Those will help bring your aerobic pace down just as much as hammering workouts will. Yeah, I mean, simplify it. He's just running easy base miles and he wants to get a little more speed. What's the best way to start, right? You can do exactly what you're doing and throw in one interval workout a week and your body's going to respond to that, thus making your easy pace faster and thus uh, helping all around. Um, It didn't sound like you had any real specific goals here, so that's a tough one. I mean, I would just create a little more discrepancy in your training. Get a few shorter runs and just make one of those those, you know, regular sessions, a longer, easy session, and then one track or speed workout. And you're going to see a lot, a lot of change. And here's the thing about swinging the old hammer, Kirk, the Mm -hmm. more you swing it, the less enjoyable every other run becomes. Yep. If you're running for enjoyment and to build volume and to make it through a year, I'd only want to be swinging once per week. So I only compromise one or two runs and I can enjoy all the others. As soon as I'm swinging twice per week, plus a long run, there's no room for enjoyment miles in there because you're always recovering. Mm-hmm. Very true. The, the more enjoyment I want in my running, the less I'm working hard. Yeah, that's true. It really does. If you really swing in the hammer, it messes up days afterwards. Two questions left and then I'm done. Okay. I am the opposite of you guys. I am a slow mountain goat. I can hold my own up and downhill running. How do I get faster on the flats? Training group has recently started trail interval night which would certainly help. Do you think it would be good to add another day of short, spicy stuff? Hmm. How good is your, I mean, when you say you got stay power, are we talking like we can run and run and run, but we can't break like 10 minute mile slow. Um, As he can hold his own on up and down, which means he's got to have some amount of speed. You know, I would maybe do like a speed interval day and then a specific threshold flat day or something like that. But I, you're going to need to do some short, fast stuff for sure. Sound like a classic case for that. What do you think? I mean, I, I fully agree with that. If the training group is has recently started trail interval night, well, that's an added stimulus right there. Mm-hmm. I might be tempted, not might, I would be tempted to start with just that and see what that does. And then add a second stimulus to the week if you need. But if you add both, you don't really know which one did it. Mm. And so when you get to the next stage of training, which piece is more important, you don't really know. So if you have this big volume, big engine, and you add one trail night, you're going to know what happens to it. And after you've done that for four to six weeks, then think about adding a second and see what that does to you. It's either going to make you a lot better, it's going to keep you the same with more fatigue, or it's going to break you down. And then you know the priorities. I wonder what kind of trails they're running on too, though. Are they going and chasing mountain peaks in these trail intervals or are they on flat trails? That kind of makes a difference too. For sure. I've got a long one here from Jamie Lankellis something. Uh, (laughs) It cuts off. Jamie Sparkles 13. How about that? Jamie Sparkles. Hey, uh, I started a running program for the first time in the middle of last year. So tempo runs, aerobic runs, and track speed work. All very new to me. I did a few speed sessions on the track early on, but with all COVID-related venue closures where I live, the track was ultimately closed for a few months, so I did speed sessions on the roads. We can all relate to that. 
When the track opened again in March, I was pleasantly surprised to see that my pacing had improved substantially. I don't know if it was a result of doing the speed work on the roads or becoming faster with the additional training or a combo of both. I know typically you're faster on the track than on the road, so my question is this. Is it advisable to switch up your training so you're doing a block of speed work on the track and then another block of speed work on the roads in order to raise your floor and become faster overall? Or is it better to stick to the track as much as possible for speed work? I think it's worth getting your speed up over different terrains as much as possible, but would love to hear your thoughts. I just had this conversation with an athlete. Okay. Here's what I said to them. If the sport of track and field never existed and you were in charge of coming up with a place for people to work on their running speed that would translate to all types of running, would you develop a track oval? Nope. And he said, no, no, I wouldn't. I said, why not? He said, well, one, why would we only turn one direction if you had perfect world? I said, yep. And he said, two, why we don't ever spend that much time turning steadily in a race. I said, good. He said, (laughs) in three, it just doesn't, it's not that fun. I said, fantastic. That's your answer. If you're going to run track work and you love it, do it. If you want to become the best well-rounded athlete possible, I just don't see the need for a track. Full stop. (laughs) Um, First of all, you got better, not because like the roads made you better, Jamie, I don't believe. I believe that you got better because of consistency of training over time. And then you had a chance to put it on an objective oval circle and see that you did indeed get better. You do not need a track to get better. You do not need the roads to get better. It wasn't the roads that made you better. It was your consistency to follow through with the plan. And you happen to see that on the track when you hopped on it the first time. The roads are no more beneficial than the track, in my opinion, or vice versa. Um, unless the roads have a bunch of undulating terrain and now you're getting some hill work in there as well. But, um, I agree with you, Bracken. I think the track is significantly overrated. It's a nice change up. If you love it, stick to it. But if not, it is very much not necessary. Uh, she also asked, you should not put it in a specific block of like cement work or track work. I think you do, it feels right. What excites you, what keeps you coming back. Um, but I think varying the train is important. If you wanted to just purely increase your speed and the most sterile, setting possible what would your number one and two options be well in a sterile environment i mean the point of people go to a track is so they don't have to worry about footing they can track their pace accurately and they can just worry about running so if that's all you wanted what would your top two options be my top option would be an indoor track and my second option would be an outdoor track okay (laughs) mine would be a long flat bike path and then a treadmill Okay, we're not allowing the track as part of this. No, no, I'm saying anything. All you want to do is work on your speed, your stride, and get faster. I don't think mm. track would be one of my top two options. Because if I only wanted to in just pure speed and turnover, I wouldn't want to change my stride ever. And running turns with just one hip, that's that doesn't seem like what I want to do. I'd either be on a treadmill or a bike path. It depends where you're racing. Well, how many adults race on the track? Not very many. I would hit specific concrete before a concrete race and specific track before a track race. I mean, what do I, what do we really do? Like if anything, I train off the track exclusively and then I go to it for a time trial because it's a consistently yes. measurable objective way to know. And then I go do all my training off of it again. And then I go back, back and check in again, but it's only for, uh, to get rid of subjectivity. Correct. That's it. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Chris McLeod says, This week's Training Tuesday episode, you talked about sand running training for Abu Dhabi, but what about world's toughest mudder? Um, The new location looks like it's going to be very sandy. Do you have any training tips for spending 24 hours running in the sand? Bullet proof your hip flexors. You got to lunge. You got to thrust. You got to do all those things for hip flexors and just 
do your long runs there. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to suck, but you got to do it. What if you don't have any sand? Mm, you find the next best thing. Uh, shin deep water, maybe. I was going to say shin deep water for the, the raising of the, the knee drive. Yeah. And the hip flexors. Yeah. And then lunge and pulse and thrust and pulse and do all those things that can replicate that. Yeah. And I would say hill running. If you're not going, if you're not going to have the terrain itself, you're going to notice it burns up the legs very similarly to going uphill. Like yeah, that like 15 to 20% grade even sometimes. So I would just, I would actually, even if it's a flattish course, put more of a hill block in there and prep. This might be the time for that tire drag or sled drag. Perfect. Yep. Whenever it rains, get out there in it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Not kidding. Uh Yeah. All right. Here's my last one. A follow-up to the bad coaching episode. I see a lot of coaching certifications thrown out there. Are there some better than others? When looking for coaches, should they have any specific certifications? And can a certification help an individual coach themselves better? Also, how did Lisa's surgery go? Um, I was half listening because I was reading the next question. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll reread it. When choosing a coach, what coaching certifications matter? You see people throw all sort of certifications out there and follow up. Does it help you to coach yourself to get certifications? Oh, does it help you to coach yourself? Yeah, I would say it would probably be beneficial depending on which certification and what they're teaching you is um, and your base knowledge to start with. I will tell you, and I'm sure you will back this up. I've learned far more from trial and error and what happened with myself and my athletes than I have from anything I've read in a book. Um, for sure. It's just like I'd studied Spanish all through high school. And then I went to Mexico and I learned more in that two weeks than I ever did in four years of Spanish. Right. So, um, in that sense, it's a tough question to answer, but more knowledge is always better than less. So that's where I stand on that. I really struggle with this Kirk Mm -hmm. because my entire life experiences had led, led me to the feeling that I don't care about what credentials you have behind your name up into a point. Right. Because I went through five years of college and I didn't learn a thing actionable from my teaching career until I went and started doing my classroom hours. Mm-hmm. And I mean that. The only thing I learned was how to proctor a standardized test. And that can be learned in 30 minutes online. There are so, I, I guess here's here's what I think. Base level accreditation. That's not the word. Base level credits and, and, and symbols. Accreditation. Behind. Accreditation. Base level accreditation really doesn't mean anything to me. Once you start looking at master's and PhD level, you know someone's gone on the deep dive into something. And that is very, very good. However, my my general like BS radar goes off when if you ask someone about what they do or if they advertise what they do, they lead with their credentials rather than their experiences or their recommendations. If anytime I've been in on a hiring process, do you know what people cared about on their resumes? It was the references and the experience level. They did not care about what you had next to your name unless it was a mandated, you must have a bachelor level experience or a master's level education in order to do this. It's all about your time in the field and the people that can 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 definitely talk to what you do well and what you do poorly. Mm-hmm. I would, the coolest hiring process I was ever in on, they called the the candidates, um, their references. And they said, all right, at the end of this, give me two people that aren't on here that you think would give a great recommendation and two people this person never got along with. And then they called all four. 
Mm. And they based their higher ability based on people who had bad experiences with them, what they said. And it was less about what the people admitted to not liking and more about what they would admit to they still did well. Okay. So they know you're going to have bad experiences. Oh, that guy's a jerk. And he he really screwed me over here. But yeah, I'll admit he had good classroom management. And you can know if that person says he's still good at it, he's probably pretty damn good at it. So anyways, yeah. long story short, I don't, I don't want to see people lead with their credentials. I want to see them lead with their experience and what they can prove they've done. Mm-hmm. And in the running world, there are a lot of BS certifications out there that people can in a weekend become certified to coach and shape young athletes, but they have no life experience to back it up. Life experience wins. I It's kind of a rant from me. I don't like when people lead with their certifications. I agree with that. Uh, but to this person's question, like the more knowledge, the better, right? hundred percent. Just learn for themselves. Um, you probably will take a few things out of that certification. When you're looking at hiring somebody or if somebody knows something or not, I think the list of accreditations are kind of thrown out the window. I mean, Bracken, tell me, what are you certified in? How many coaching accreditations do you have? I have none. Okay. I have none as well, Bracken. I have a degree, but I am my certification, my ACE certification is run out. I have a personal training business, Bracken, that I train people They come in. My NASM certification has expired. I have nothing that is currently accredited or acknowledged, but people are still very successful and people still come to me. I have no, nothing active right now. And yet this is my career, my full-time career because of experience. And I did have them at some time and I've learned a lot along the way and I have a degree, but it's the other piece that you speak about that's more important. I had the CPR thing. I have, well, I, have, uh, yeah, I have to have that. For the the first aid thing. You know, I did all that. Well, right. And there are a lot of good credentials out there. Some very worthwhile credentials and a lot of avenues. But you have to remember that these credentials are money-making businesses as well. And so like these, this is a money pro- for most of them are for-profit organizations. And so you getting certified by them is helping you. Maybe it's also certainly helping them. So like there is... It's a, it can be a little backwards if you look into it too much at times. So got to just think about that too. Okay, we have, we're going to roll through these super fast. We just got a few more because we're getting like two hours, okay? Uh, Lindsay Smith, I'm cutting out some of, the, uh, some of the extra stuff. Let's just see. She just finished the long run episode and it was really informative. She came to running late in her life, so she is pretty much self-taught. So she has no benefit of past running experience or coaching, but she really likes running. So her question is, what is the best way to get from half marathon to full marathon distance? Each week, I currently run 90-ish minute long, 90-ish minute with intervals in the middle, a 90-ish minute run with a tempo in the middle, and then I add distance in my long run day. I'm up to 25 kilometers. How should that long run look, pace, nutrition, feel? If you're already doing two quality long runs, I'd get out there and I would just run aerobically. Practice your race nutrition, sure, but but I wouldn't put anything other than I'd stay below my aerobic threshold on that long run day. Sounds like you're doing everything great. Keep building up. I agree with that. She's up to 25K, which what is that, like 18 miles roughly for her long run, um, which isn't bad. No, that's 15 miles for a long run. Um, so you're going to have to get up to you know 35K probably in your long run. So keep working that. But I like you're adding intervals. You're adding threshold work. Keep increasing that long run. One a week is plenty. One every other week is even fine too. Mm-hmm. Um, what? If I tweaked it, I would take one of those 90 minutes down to maybe 70. Since you're doing 90, 90 in the long run, I might take one down to 70 and tack that onto the long run. Yeah. But that's about all I'd change. Yeah. You got a lot of the puzzle pieces already in the right place there. Um, All right. Let's see. Marco Antico says, in talking about 
the spear throw in recent Q&A, you mentioned how you should hold it really close to the side of your head. Holy cow, that small common sense tip completely changes the flight path of the spear, which is what I always struggle with. I have one in my backyard, so I practice it a lot, and I feel I'm three times as consistent now that now thanks to your tip. Uh, oh, thanks, man. Keep up the amazing work in the podcast. I think I saw the, <laughs> I think I saw Q and A in there, and I screenshot it, but he wasn't asking a question. I thought we were going somewhere, folks. Hold that spear close to your head. Pat myself. I'm going to leave that in there. People should rehear that. The farther you hold it away, the harder it is to throw it in a straight lane, straight line of movement, which is. You don't want to be an athlete. You want to be a spear chucker. And that means keeping that spear close to your head when you throw it, not winging your arm way out. All right. Um, next from, uh, let's see, Josh Bouquet says managing expectations, particularly when coming back from injury. Mm. And that's actually a much deeper question than that simple sentence, but managing yes. expectations. Progress based goals rather than setting. I must hit this by here. You hit your baseline. And your goal is to improve it until you finally reach where you were and then go exceed that. But I think progress-based goals rather than I was a 17-minute 5K runner and I need to be there by April 15th or June 40th. Timelines are out the window when you're coming back from injury, period, end of story. No timelines start there. You wake up that next day and you reassess out of bed every single day. Yes. That's what I have to say about that. And do not expect linear progress. Nope, there'll be setbacks. Recovery is not a linear progression. Mm -hmm. I agree. Feeling good does not mean you're fixed. It means get ready to be slapped down a little bit, and that's okay. It's never a clean graph of exponential betterness. Uh, Jeremiah Mahan says, I recently started running with a guy who has a limited trail experience but has a great engine. He wastes so much energy with the line he takes on the trails. Oh, another theme here. He hasn't realized that running the dead center of the trail isn't often the best line. He never hits the apex of the turn. I've spent so much time running, mountain biking, and dirt biking that I don't have to think about it. I'm sure you two have some insight. It's hard to describe to a new runner that sometimes the longer route that's smoother is better, and sometimes the shorter route with a huge step is faster, and you don't have to make that decision at race pace. I guess we kind of chatted that one out already, didn't we? Yeah. I think I'd tell him that, Jeremiah. Yeah, just straight up say that. Say it to him, and then... Maybe run the trail with him leading and then loop it again and say, now stay 10 feet off me. Watch the, tr watch the path I take and see what your times look like comparatively and how the effort is. Let him run behind you. That's how I learned how to run downhill. I ran behind some monsters. Yeah, that's true. Um, Cole Schwartz, would a super shoe help at High Rocks? If so, which one would be best? Now I answered Cole offline. You did. But yeah, I think a super shoe would help. The, the caveat there is it has to stay on your foot. It's got to stay on your foot and it's got to have enough traction to get through the sleds. But at the end of the day, you're running eight by thousand. And if you can cut five seconds off each thousand, well, that's a 40 second savings right there. So if you cannot lose 40 seconds on the stations, it's already helpful. But how is it going to feel to walking lunge with a super shoe on? Is it going to, you're going to lose that time right back because of the inefficiency of the shoe and your, and your displacement from the ground? Is it going to mess with your skier cadence or how you burpee broad jump when your foot hits the ground funny? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, what do you maybe. think? It certainly might. And that's the kind of thing that you only know by practicing. So I know you're going to gain 30 to 60 seconds on the run just off the mechanical savings. Now, if you can do that with less pounding on your legs, which your quads take a beating in high rocks, and you can do it with being a little more efficient, then you add another couple seconds onto there. So 
you got to test it out. But if you find that I can burpee broad jump within five seconds of what I could do and the sled I'm within five to 10 seconds, then it becomes a math equation, a really, really simple one. So you think it's worth entertaining that conversation though of a super shoot in a high rocks event? I think any race that you're running for longer than 30 minutes, maybe longer than 10 minutes, the super shoe is worth considering if you're going for maximum performance. Yes, but you have to test it out. Got to test it out. David Megiddo wore the New Balance RC Elites, and that's exactly what I would have worn. They have okay. super traction, and he said they didn't struggle uh, coming off his feet at all. However, Renee wore the Adi Zero uh, pros, which are more of our traditional racing flat carbon fiber plate. And her heel came out of it on her very first sled push. Uh, so no. that's why you got to test these babies because they are not all the same in terms of stability platform lockdown on top, all that. Okay. Uh, a few more here, Benjamin Trutter. How long does it take to build a decent base? My easy zone two runs are so slow. 11 minute pace. I feel like I haven't made proper progress in the year of running I've done. I am a noob and spent too long just running as hard as I could for as long as I could and not doing much intervals or actual easy runs. Thanks. The newer you are, the longer it takes. But I don't see any benefit of staying longer than 12 weeks in a base building phase. Well, he's talking about a year. I haven't made proper progress in the year of running I've done. Um, he said he spent too long just running as hard as I could for as long as I could and not doing much intervals or actual easy runs. So I, there's more information we need to gather here. And that is one, are you only doing long, easy zone two stuff right now? Or are you actually polarizing your training with hard stuff? I don't know. But next step would certainly be add in one to two quality sessions a week and get out of that zone two and get uncomfortable, but don't spend time in that middle area. I mean, that would be the next answer, but I'm not sure what you're currently doing, Benjamin. I think the safe, easy, predictable answer is that you do aerobic threshold testing and you do it every week or every other week until it stagnates. And once it stagnates, you're ready for the next stage. And if you're really doing it as a newbie, then I like going from base phase into transitional base where you start adding in short little things and some threshold, but you're not actually hitting like a full on block of it's like transitional. You're moving from base to quality. There's something in between there, but test it out with aerobic threshold. It's going to get better until it's not. And when it's not, yeah, you've built your base. You're not going to get any better off just aerobic work. Now you got to add some spice. Add the spice, baby. That's what I think the answer is. We're almost there. Matt Malone, as coaches of age group athletes, you may be able to answer my question. Is Spartan inviting every age group finisher to North American Championship? I got a qualification email with the registration code, but I finished 23rd in my one age group race this year. I can't imagine that 13 plus people ahead of me had already qualified to have the qualification drop that far down. Have you heard anything like this from your athletes? Basically, he's asking if they're just handing out invites to the NORAM champs like candy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it seems to be that. Check their website, but... If they're, I don't think they're doing their like quick roll down where you have 48 hours and now it rolls down. Listen, Spartan took a hit like everyone else did and maybe more than a lot did because they spent millions that they never got to return any investment on. So they're going to have some slots available for people. Spartan needs to make some money back is what I'm understanding. And it doesn't cheapen the fact that you can go, like you should still go and and race if it excites you and have the experience. Um, but I do think an invitation uh, in the last couple of years really hasn't, unless you're qualifying for like the ultra world champs where you have to get an ultra under your belt beforehand or something, 
pretty much weasel your way into any big race these days, I feel like, in some some way. Yeah, the invitation is take it and then prove it on race day. It gives people that may not have a background of racing a lot of time to improve if they're new to the sport mm -hmm. and get to a sport, a race that they maybe didn't, wouldn't have earned in past years, but are definitely going to be ready for six months from now. Yeah, exactly. Um, we got two or three left here. Uh, and let's just do them all because then we'll have our slate cleared. I know it's a long one, but. It's all right. I can cut some stuff out of that accreditation talk. No, I liked it. We keep that in there, Bracken. Okay. Joshua Cruz has a layered question, but I, I glance and I like some of these. Joshua Cruz says, uh, what do you think is the minimum amount of mileage you should do per week to perform with the pros, even if you get in at least two high quality runs per week? I know this will vary depending on the distance. So let's just say half marathon beast distance. He's got a number of questions. So what do you think the minimum amount of mileage, even if you're doing two quality workouts? I'm going to say nine hours. Nine hours. I'm not, yeah, plus or minus an hour. I don't, I just can't put numbers on it because you've had times where you were top five at a national series race with 15 miles per week and Hobie did it off 18, but they're getting volume in other ways. I'm going to say plus or minus one from nine hours is the minimum to be a, a legitimate pro threat. I'm going to say with the word minimum in there, plus or minus one from six hours only because I tend to hover in the low range. If he's doing two quality workouts a week and getting in proper work, I think that- All volume I'm counting. Yeah. You, well, I'm, yeah. You're not training six hours. But he's speaking run specifically. No, yeah, and I'm speaking training. I can't put a run volume on. I'm talking training, all okay. training. Nine hours. Nine hours is- Of cardio or strength work as well? Uh, I guess we can add in strength, but only to a point. Of useful, good training- I'm going to say nine hours, plus or minus one. Okay. His follow-up. This is related to question one. it should one. be cardio. Yes, I agree. This is related to question one, but how much training time do the pros put in per week? So he wants, he's very curious about what the top guys are doing. I'm going to say cardio alone, six to 15 hours. It's that varied. Yeah. yeah I'd say the average is between nine and 11 in the meat of their training. You're going to have people way more, some people less, but nine to 11 hours is always cardio is what I race best off. And I think that I represent the average volume athlete in OCR. Yep. I agree with that. I think my high, I'll hit get in the eights for run volume, but I'll have a bike or two in there too. So probably about there. Um, now, number three, this is related to the previous two questions. See, I told this was layered. Do you think it's better to run based on time or distance? Time done. <laughs> I was listening to the podcast with Dr. Clary and was wondering what a good metabolic training exercise should be to perform. Should I stick with something like deadlifts or maybe some kind of single leg exercise uh, to be more specific to running? So that's a follow-up question saying it'd be like 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off with a strength movement. And he's asking what would be the best. And the best movement for the metabolic training would be one that recruits the most muscle fibers, in my opinion. Could be a squat, deadlift, um, even like a thruster or anything complex, but very sub-maximal. And done with high reps, minimal rest is what he's referring to. But Yeah, I think maximal, there's two ways of approaching it. Maximal muscle fiber recruitment, which, and go with your deadlift or a thruster. A thruster is a little, you have to have good form to thrust mm -hmm. heavy and high intensity. But if you want pure sports specific, I think heavy sled push or weighted lunge. Mm, I like those two. Where you're driving forward and you're combining modality with ATP. ATP. Two more. Will Crockett. I'm currently 190 pounds, down from a high of 360 pounds years ago. Whew. Wow. Will. Will. Congrats. Congrats. 
I've now managed a few age group podiums, but I always have this weight loss mindset struggle that I think has begun to halt my progress. In part, I wonder about what amount of body weight may be attributable to excess skin versus remaining body fat to drop. I guess the question would be, do you have experience working with clients with significant weight loss history? And if so, how did they navigate this in respect to training and reaching an optimal weight for performance and endurance training events? So he's asking how much of that weight, like, is it, can he even lose more weight or is he where he needs to be? And he's just has excess skin and it's not going anywhere. Um, I'll just jump in. Cause I've helped, uh, God, I bet you it's close to a dozen people now lose over a hundred pounds. So, um, and all of them deal with the skin issue. Uh, and the answer is, um, skin weighs a lot, especially when you get that adipose tissue attached to it. Um, it can be pretty dang heavy and not, and you, you might be a candidate for skin removal surgery, but, um, you could probably cut off 20 to 30 pounds of excess skin in just your midsection and rolls. And that's non-functioning tissue. Um, so my instinct not looking at you tells me that in fact, um, you might be bottomed out, man, with your weight loss and that's okay. And that I think you should be very happy with the progress you've done. I'm very proud of that. And I don't know if trying to lose more is going to be a fruitless, frustrated effort because my guess is now you're kind of stuck with the stretched, expanded skin. Um, and that does weigh, it does weigh something. So that's a tough one. I get it. I totally get it. But um, I think a lot of that is you've done the work already and now you're dealing with the fact that you were very overweight for a while and now you are not. And that's sort of the the bummer when it comes to losing significant weight. So, you know, strap that shit in and run fast. That's what I tell my people. I got a couple that, you know, their bellies flop around now and it's all skin. I body fat tested them and they're lean, but it's that excess skin that just won't go away and that adds up. So tough call. Yeah. I mean, that's your world. I am not a weight loss coach. And I don't pretend to be. What I do have experience with is extreme dedication and the amount of dedication it takes to go from 50 mile weeks to 100 is the same dedication it takes to go from 360 pounds down to 190. Mm -hmm. And they come with drawbacks. And one of the drawbacks is you see everything through the lens of what got you there. And mm -hmm. so now you are at this performance place where you want to get better. And the thing that you know that frames every one of your actions and thoughts is weight loss. And like Kirk said, you are at a point where you have to reframe what your performance gains are going to come from. At some yeah. point, adding more volume does not help you and it hurts you. And at some point, losing more weight does not help you. It hurts you. You've done a fantastic job. Job is now you are at the place where anything more is not only diminishing returns, but now we're talking health issues. And so yeah. you focus on somewhere else. And it sucks that that, that 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 extra skin, and like you said, adipose tissue is your cross to bear. It's not fair. It's just the associated baggage of having got that big in the first place is you never fully get back to what you would have been without. And you are not also the same mentally. And so you have that plus and the skin is the minus and now it's decision point where it's surgery or acceptance. But I don't know if you have much more fat to lose, man. I really don't. Um, I agree with all that, by the way, Bracken. I don't, I really believe if you really have lost 150 pounds, um, 170 pounds that, uh, you got 20, 30 pounds of skin on you that got created and stretched when you were bigger. And I tell my people who, what happens is my people lose a bunch of weight and they feel better and their life is going great. And they're so frustrated with the flaps and the, and the skin. And I tell them, you wear that shit proud. 
Like, do not let you or anybody else, like, look what I did. Look at what I, I used to fill this out and freaking wear it proud. That's not an embarrassment. That is something to, you know, wear with honor and pride. So I don't know. I can't imagine it because it's such an empowering process to lose it. And then the vein, not even vein, the well, vein, it could be vein might be vanity, right. but positive vanity, the person side of you that wants what you've done to show that perfect end game is constantly reminded by that. And there's no mm-hmm. other way to look at it than I earned these. It's a reminder of what got me there in the first place and a negative side and what I earned on the backside to get away from it. But I feel for you. Very good question. Very worthwhile discussion. Uh, Parker Wade, XC. We got a quick, easy one and then we're done. Hey, huge fan of the podcast. Quick question. What are the most comfortable and breathable running briefs for warm and hot weather running? Hmm. You got your favorites. I got mine. What do you got? Hot weather. I, oh, I don't have any I love. I'll, I'll put up with the jockey uh, microfiber. Okay. That's, that's that's my best probably jockey microfiber, but my most comfortable across the board is craft greatness boxer brief. So good. So light, so airy. I travel them on a plane now because I just feel like I'm cradled in breathable softness. Well, that does sound nice. I, I mean, I, I don't know much outside of what I have and I've had a few pairs. I've had the mud gear pair, uh, which are okay. They're hot though. Uh, they're hot. Um, in winter, they're nice. They keep the thighs warm. They're a little longer, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been a Runderwear guy since I bought them. I haven't worn other types, but my Runderwear briefs, or not my briefs, the like sport trunks or boxers, really like. They're light. Again, they're very soft and almost too comfortable, and um, I've had no problems with them, but I don't know if you've worn those or not. Yeah, I have. The, the, it's, it's that uh, women have it better than men in this regard, because for a female, you can wear the lightest, airish, mesh, meshiest type of fabric you want because containment's not an issue. With guys, you have to balance that out. I want some supportive nature and I want to be able to breathe and you can't have both. So targeted paneling is nice, but something has to sit right in the middle. And for me, it's the jockey microfiber. All right. Well, that was a big, that was a big one today back in. Whew. Yeah, we're going to truncate silence on this. It'll cut out seven minutes and then maybe some nonsense, but we're almost two hours on a Q&A. Well, no, we're two and a half. Oh, we are. I forgot about that early on. Good. This recording cut on us half hour in, so we did uh, We did about two and a half hours. Might be our longest episode yet, Bracken. We just love chatting so much, don't we? We do. And <laughs> we're making, we get paid by the hour, folks. We do. So we are rich after this one. Get ready for four hour Q&As. You got anything to sign off with today? I'm, I'm impressed we both made it this long without going to the bathroom. Yeah. We both drink caffeine. I drink 28 ounces of caffeinated water during this so I can work out afterwards. And you came in with caffeinated drink as well. And you prefaced it with, I'm going to have to go to the bathroom early on. And we made it two and a half hours uninterrupted, like grown men. I'm a master of my body, Brack, and it does what it is told. Oh, I'm almost cramping. I have to go to the bathroom so bad. All right. Well, uh, I hope you guys have a real long run. And this is wrapping up about the end of it for you. So (laughs) happy to keep you company, folks. Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Mm